Welcome to the Hellboy Book Club. My name is John Salinas, and I'm here with... Aubrey Loveless. And I'm Danielle. And I'm Matt Schreckwein. Hey, it's Aubrey's birthday! Hey, it's Aubrey's birthday! Oh, happy birthday, Aubrey! Thank you. Happy birthday, Aubrey! Thank you. Yeah, the day that this episode comes out, it's Aubrey's birthday. Thank and you. so, yeah, shout out to Aubrey on his birthday. <laughs> and so, here's your gift, Aubrey. Aw. What? What the hell is this? <laughs> <laughs> Whoa. What? Oh my god, Don just gave me a bunch of awesome fucking singles from Hellboy. I'm gonna have to take a picture and post it so we can all see. Wow. Oh my god. It's a lot of really cool issues. Seed oh. of destruction. Number, number one. one. Holy shit, and it's not the reprint either. No, yeah. Wow. Oh my god, so we got from the vault 2010 sea destruction this one that has a 25 on it that's the kevin nolan um what is it the mignola variant for buster oakley gets his wish oh my god we have the black and white variant for the adam hughes crumpish knot uh christmas one we have the guy davis premiere edition of hellboy uh the corpse in the iron shoes oh my god that's a pretty old one yeah, and some other cool ones in the there. The Beast of Varga? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I went through it. <laughs> They're all, all the... ones that John thought maybe like you didn't have, so. Like, yeah, I had a bunch of um, bunch of these extra issues, and I was like, is this is this lame to give to Aubrey? And Danielle said, I think that it's bad if you don't give them to him. Why do you have all these extra <laughs> yeah. things? So, yeah, man, I thought that it would you would enjoy that. Yeah, so happy birthday. Man, I'm going to give you a hug in a minute. Aww. <laughs> And that's why John and Danielle are the baddest motherfuckers around. Uh, yeah. <laughs> You're welcome, man. Nice. Hey, gang. Hope you've been enjoying the show. Maybe we've got some new listeners as a result of the bonus episode. So give us a follow on the social media, guys. Interact, and then you're part of the book club. But to make it crystal clear for you, here's Danielle. We're book club, and that means you are, we're going to say, hey, we're going to read this book. And then you read it, and then you send us a, hey, damn guys. And then we talk about it, and that means you send us like an email or leave us a comment. <laughs> and then we say, hey, damn guys, and we talk about that. And then we say, okay, last time we told you that we're going to read this one next time, and now it's next time, and we're going to read this one now. <laughs> and then you do it all over again, and then it's also friendship and you're a book club member and that's a book club back to you john uh thank you danielle oh that was great <laughs> also go check out mike mignola's art on facebook for the raffle goodness we had our bonus episode on friday talking about the buff raffle that's going to be going on thank you craig mcknight for joining us and for putting on this awesome raffle a buff raffle yeah man and those are some buff ass prizes <laughs> yes really and we're always thinking about our friend Case, always remember that uh, oh, yeah. the donations yeah. from the raffle, you know, they're not going to anyone's pocket. All the artists are donating their art for free, so all the proceeds are going to go to research for cancer prevention and towards causes like COPD and Alzheimer's. So it's a great cause on top of earning some awesome prizes. One thing that we had a mess up on our bonus episode was the Matt Smith that is donating and the one that did... The Long Night at Golosky Station, which is a great issue. That's not the same Matt Smith that did Ape Sapien versus Science. They just, okay. it's two different Matt Smiths. They have the same I, name. 
I was thinking, I was like, wow, his style changed drastically. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, so thanks to Jerry Turnbull and Ross Radke for pointing that out. Book club members. And so you can follow this Matt Smith, the one that's contributing to the raffle. Um, I follow him as Barbarian Lord on Instagram and Twitter. He's always posting awesome stuff. And check out Long Night at Golosky Station. It's a great issue. We had some feedback on our bonus episode last week. Thanks again to Craig McKnight for joining us on the show. It was a lot of fun. Ross Radke said, Incredibly honored to be asked to contribute artwork this year. When I saw the amazing artist on the prize list, my first thought was, Why is my name even on here? Yeah, <laughs> That's but- <laughs> what I said. <laughs> because you're both awesome. Yeah. That's why. And also check out Clown Car. He linked that on it. He pinned it on his Twitter and it was really awesome. I read through it. It was really great. So I, yeah, I right. love really, uh, I really love Ross's art. Whoever wins his prize, I'm sure is going to get an awesome commission from him. I'm working with Ross right now on a educational comic. Oh, that's nice. amazing. I would love to see yeah. that. It's a six pager. should be done before the end of the year. So awesome. Really cool. Yeah. Ian Geiger said, love the episode. You have a new listener. Can't wait to catch up on the past ones. Ian Geiger. Book club member. Yeah. And Ryan Yule said, this raffle is going to be epic. One of those skeleton pins will be mine. I was already excited for it, but now even more so. Like Matt guessed, I was mentally going through a checklist of contributing artists whose pieces I have yet to acquire. (laughs) (laughs) While I agree the idea of 20 people talking over each other on the podcast would be bad, I enjoyed listening to Craig as a guest. I also think a book club meetup sometime would be amazing. So fun. Hashtag Hellboy Book Club Con 2020. Yeah. Hey. <laughs> yes. Let's make it happen somehow. And now we're going to move on to our listener feedback. I'm a blubbers. I see all the things you might think it abrupt. This is the greatest podcast. So get out your trades and floppies. We had a Hey You Damn Guys from Brian Levy. Brian Levy. Book Club member. Nice. So Abe is Oannes. And Oannes is the union between the first race of man and the second race of man, destined to sire the third race of man. That's some really inspired stuff. And the sea angel thing is an ascended Hyperborean priest. Weird. When I first read this stuff three years ago, I felt a little let down in learning that the Numyabis creature wasn't some ethereal mystery creature alien thing, but just a kind of guy. But since then, I've learned about a the concept. A guy. <laughs> but since then, I've learned about the concept of an ascended master. There's this yeah, idea. Super cool, right? Agree. There's this idea in occult thought that some people got so good at magic and stuff that they left the physical plane and exists now in the beyond and can be contacted through rituals to learn secrets from. The artist. Alf Klimt, whose work I know would be interesting to any of y'all more interested in real-life occult stuff, was part of a woman's seance group in the 1800s called The Five that claimed to have made contact with the Ascended Masters and allowed the Masters to use their minds as a channel for communication and created really beautiful works of art that they say was created automatically, like the Masters were painting and writing these beautiful abstract designs and artwork using the Five's minds and hands. Anyway, the idea of the Hyperborean priest who reached a level of enlightenment upon death 
and then was reached and channeled by call made me think of that, and it made the whole concept of a sea angel being transformed into a priest a lot more interesting. He shared a video of Off Klimt and of her work and everything, and I just found it fascinating, yeah. and so I sent it to all of you guys. Did you have a chance to watch that? Yeah, I watched it this morning, and I... I, I'll be honest, I hadn't heard of her, but I, I want to look her up because her the artwork they showed in the video was amazing. Yeah. Well, I found the whole thing just so fascinating, and I'm completely obsessed now. Yeah. Completely obsessed now. So you were right on the money with that. Yeah, I'm I'm a mega fan for life now of this whole entire concept. Like, the, the longer that video went on, the more I was just like, yes, this is very <laughs> much my shit. Well, and uh, Aubrey, you said that you've never heard of her. Well, I think that video just came out last year. Yeah. So she didn't want any of her works revealed to yeah. the public for like 20 years. So yeah. what is that about? I thought that was one of the most fascinating things about the whole thing. So we're all finding yeah. out about this together. And he said he actually went to that exhibit twice. Wow. He said it was really cool. Yeah. That's commitment. She really committed to that. Right. Like her whole entire conceptual deal. Can we be sure he went to that exhibit of his own free will? <laughs> right. <laughs> um, so I I love that stuff. I chalk that up to um, like real life mystery. Right. You know, stuff I love that, stuff like that. Stuff that you can't explain, but there's evidence of it. It's all there. Yeah. But it's not totally it. Okay. My I, favorite part is that it doesn't need to be explained. It's right. just a right. thing. And yeah. it's not like somebody did it to get a following or make money. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. And so right there, I'm like, well, they believed it. Right. And yeah. That's that's usually enough for me. That makes but, it um, real. It makes it yeah. 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 So I I thought that was just fascinating. Yeah. So I want to go back and read the article, but I did check out the video. Normally I get really turned off about people talking about somebody else's artwork. Right. In in like a documentary or something when that person isn't there to talk about it uh, themselves. Okay. But in this case, I was like, oh, I'll take whatever I can get. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like I need to know about this. Yeah. So, it was yeah. It was fascinating. Yeah. 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 Thank you so much, Brian, for sending that. It was so interesting, and I'll post a link to that video with let this us, episode. Please let us know if you go back a third time because oh yeah <laughs> I, is it something like he has to travel to it is it nearby i don't know I, he... I, I don't know exactly it's at the guggenheim oh, yeah please okay. always feel free to tell us about weird fringe artists who may or may not be a shaman right or a witch yeah. or something <laughs> <laughs> like please always feel free to to lay that on us he said final note we see a lot of hell in the mignola verse but we never get much of heaven now we know that souls can move on. Something analogous to God exists. But that's about it. Here's my theory. Nothing in the Mignolaverse just is. Everything can be traced back if you stretch your brain enough to the Watchers, the Agra Jihad, the Vril, and Hyperborea. Even the traditional spooky ghost folklore stuff, while far removed from the Vril stuff, is still involved. All those ghosts and creatures comment on the origins of the world and know about it and are clearly part of that lineage. We don't actually see it, but we see lots of possible people-made heavens, peaceful places to go that are beyond our plane of existence. Mm -hmm. For one, the fairy realm fits into this. It's not necessarily a place for humans to go when they die, but it's outside our world and seems like a mostly nice place to be. I think we might have caught a glimpse of another one when Abe was talking to Shanshan. Those Hyperboreans buildings drawn in the Mignola style. I think that was some kind of realm that Abe was brought into. We've also got this whole 
thrice 10th kingdom thing, which I know plenty of dead guys hang out in. It's not exactly peaceful, but it's like Russia's spirit world. I'm rambling, and also talking about this a little bit prematurely because there's stuff that will come into play pretty soon that fits into that that I won't spoil for anyone. Well, it's not rambling because it's a book club. We're all talking about these yeah. concepts together, and Aubrey and I haven't don't know about the things further down the line, so it's cool to discuss these before we get to them. Oh, yeah. I really like the ideas you brought up, and it actually makes me think, because like, oh, this I- like hell you know, is real, obviously, it's all this stuff. I wonder if it's not so much like you know, an automatic... Because these books have all expanded our ideas of what these places right. or can mean. And so it's it's maybe not so much a, a, a place as it is. It's a timeline. It's a an alternate dimension. They, they Our dimensions are all side by side. And you're not so much sent there for being bad as you are like, maybe this soul couldn't escape because there are certain entities taking advantage of the state your spirit is in when it's in this period of transition. And so like, rem- I remember... The guy that was hammering the souls into fish or whatever. Yes. And like those people, maybe they they were in such a state when they died, they couldn't break free from this guy taking advantage of the state their souls were in. And then like Johan can contact the dead because they're in this other realm or dimension over here. And it's like it's not so much that you you go here, you go there, depending on like you're not prepared to go here or there. So other entities that know that are taking advantage of you while you're in this state of transition, perhaps. Right. And so you're going to the thrice tenth, yeah. ninth, whatever. <laughs> That's uh, a cool yeah. name. I'm sorry I can't get it right. It's a super good name and I love it. Or you're going well, to the fairy a- realm because you're this type of entity. You're a fairy entity. So you're going mm-hmm. here and you've got the power to some of these entities are in control of where they're going and how they travel. Some maybe don't have the wherewithal or the foresight to know how to be in control, so we're just kind of shunted around. Sure. So it's kind of one of the, I don't know. I like that. So that kind of maybe I takes think you're on the right track. Your with thing the, is step forward. Thinking. And Brian Levy already knows what's going on because he's has already read all that. Yeah. So I'm just trying to take off of the end of the conversation that he started sure. with all of that. You know, it is fascinating and it's not dumb to talk about at all. I think it's fun. Oh, I always wondered where Roger went to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, that's a really, where's that place? He yeah. was in a very peaceful and, space and place. Yeah. And for all the stuff they show you and tell you in these comics that leave you twice as bewildered, they actually give you a lot of definite facts with the whole Abe was a shaman. Yeah. Right. And yeah turned into the jellyfish angel and that all makes sense so it i think it's a little funny that somebody would read it and go huh okay well no i mean they just told you definitely what's going on (laughs) for a change well i think it maybe and i you're just lacking that sense of bewilderment i think that's what it, it it's not feeling underwhelmed it's that they didn't deliver like twice the mystery with with an answer right, for a change. Right. See, I feel like they did, they, though. I feel like that's that's what he's, Brian Levy is bringing up, is that it's like, it kind of fits into this overall narrative of like, what is going on, though? Okay, the shaman, it's, it's kind of a new level, for me at least. It, right, it, it did right. open up a new level of like, well, if that's possible, what else is possible? Right, Who right. else is doing this? Uh, and it kind of opens like up that. this idea of like archetypes. And I, I don't know, I'm a, I'm a sucker for that. I think shit, that we're so. gonna come back to this kind of theme yeah, more definitely. and more as we go on. Go well, ahead, Aubrey. Hold on, I want to add it because um, when I was listening to our episode last week, I was like starting to think about like you know how Strobel, he spent all this time in the Black School trying to get the power of Hell because he was hoping to get 
power and become a ruler after the apocalypse or something like right. that. One right. of the people who takes advantage of... He wanted to be um, the right yeah. hand of the devil yeah, or but whatever. Then I, but I started thinking about it, but uh, it's not going to work out because hell has fallen. The hell that he knows has fallen. Right. And so he started looking for that other alternative. And then it got me thinking, well, if this hell has fallen, that means it's a different hell than a different hell. And and then it, and then I was I couldn't really think about how, but hearing this about like personal heavens and right, things like that, right. this is like a personal demonic kingdom that became yeah. its own yeah. realm and exactly fueled yeah. by You're exactly on the right track and yeah. fueled by judeo-christian beliefs it gets its power yeah yeah the more people who are yeah. believing in it the more yeah. power it has the to more power exist. It, it gives yeah yeah there's so much that i want to say but we're gonna have to save that conversation i know for we, future we stories. gotta <laughs> we gotta get back to hellboy and hell big time but the, yeah. idea, the idea the idea of the collective conscious mm-hmm. defining reality yeah. is yeah. something that I've been obsessed with for such a long time, so I love that you took that track with it. That's super oh, awesome. Yeah. And it, it reminds me of this series of books that I read when I was a kid yeah. that were great when I was a kid, but it's terrible now. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Some of that stuff doesn't age well. But uh, it had that kind of similar track, like sure. right. you know, the belief of the people gave power to that particular realm of afterlife. Right. Yeah, and yeah. as that belief falls off, the new one takes over. Yeah. yeah. Sure. Yeah. Man, so... I'm fucking excited to yeah. get to where we get, and I don't want to rush it. You know, yeah. I want it to just come naturally. But goddamn, I want to get there. <laughs> <laughs> I like the idea that the places you can go after you die in the Mignolaverse aren't just there because the Bible says so. They're either natural parts of the world, like the Irish fairy world, or they're there because of some actual fallible characters established them. Uh-huh. That's cool. That's it for me. Have a great week, Brian Levy. Yay, Thank you so much, that Brian. Was excellent, yeah, Brian Levy. What a, so great. Book club member. That was great. <laughs> Mark Tweedell said, I feel like we need a separate pose just to, for everyone to say what their non-Mignola favorite comics are. And Jan Niklas responded to that. He said, Family Man, From Hell, Watchmen, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, The Black Dossier, Black Sad Criminal, Sleeper, Comic Odyssey, Les Indes, Four Bless, I don't really know, I'm probably butchering that, Atomic Robo, Deus Ex Machina, German comic about time travel, destiny, the good stuff. City in the Desert, The Cat of the Rabbi, Afterlife Incorporated, Olympians by George O'Connor, Rex Mundy, and much, much more. I have to tell a lot. I can stop whenever I want. (laughs) Hey, have you read uh, Rex Mundy? No, I haven't read that. Oh, it makes the Da Vinci Code look like kindergarten stuff oh really it is so good yeah yeah it's fantastic and that was a series that wrapped and it was um juan ferreira for some of the art i love him on later but yeah that's where i discovered him and you're reading criminal right yeah did he say that yeah he said criminal in there and he also said comic cosmic odyssey which we talked about last week that's a really awesome uh mignola dc series i should lend that to you aubrey okay i love black sad too that's great oh i haven't read that yeah, it's like a noir detective story, but the uh, they're all animals. So like the main character is a cat. Oh, it's really okay. Cool. Wow. It's fat. The artwork is just you'll get lost in a panel for hours. It's fascinating. I love that. 
oh, I could have said this and this and this, like Ghost in the Shell, Akira, Sex Criminals from Hell. Yeah, I also made a note here too. I forgot to mention Alred, Mike Alred. I love all oh, his stuff, Mad Men. Es- especially yes. Mad Men. But I like um, his FF stuff. I also like. I love the ecstatic. The Silver did. Surfer run that he did. Ecstatics is also good. I also like the Luna Brothers. I like almost all the oh series that they've done, especially the Sword. And as far as mainstream stuff, the Bendis Brubaker run of Daredevil from the late '90s is some of my favorite stuff ever. My my favorite run of Spider Man is still uh, Bendis's Ultimate Spider Man run. Yeah, yeah. We got a Facebook post from. Ruben Strid, he said, hey guys, great podcast, love how you inspire me to go back and notice new details and connections. Listening to the episode with the Hollow Earth story, and you guys wondering why on Earth Guillermo del Toro would make Hellboy and Liz a romantic couple and not Abe and Liz. And so that was something that we talked about way back when. Oh, because I about that, that. Was a, that was a thought that I have. They have that ending of Hollow Earth, and it's really, it's really kind of touching to me, where they hold hands and they walk off, and she's like, hey, thanks yeah. for coming to, coming to save me. And he puts his arm around her, and he's like, no problem. Like, I, I really love that moment. And he said, um, regarding the shape of water, do you think that Del Toro got inspiration from that? Um, it w- I think it's impossible for him not to have. Yeah. I mean, he looked just like Abe. Right. And he's... Guillermo Del Toro. Like, I mean, it's... You know what I mean? Like, that's not a coincidence. And he worked on the Hellboy movies and stuff like that. Yeah, so I thought that was an interesting connection. But I did look this up on Wikipedia. It says that the shape of water was also primarily inspired by Del Toro's childhood memories of seeing the creature from the Black Lagoon and wanting to see the Gill Man and Kay Lawrence, played by Julie Adams, succeed in their romance. When Del Toro was in talks with Universal to direct a remake of The Creature from the Black Lagoon, he pitched this version from the creature's perspective. Doing it with a fish man. Where they end up with the female lead, and the studio executives rejected the concept. They don't have the kind of foresight and vision. But I think so that also plays into it. I don't think that it was primarily based on A, but I think that it that probably played into it. But I think that this also... You know, he does love classic monsters. Oh, yeah. And I do think that it's interesting that right before that, he had pitched a version of the creature from the Black Lagoon where this basically happens. Well, a lady doing it with a fish man was like a bridge too far for the mainstream. (laughs) I'm just saying. Well, he won a fucking Oscar. That's what I'm saying. No, but that's what I'm saying. It's like, you know, he took a risk. He went for it. He did it. He could could do it. That was the whole thing is like he was in a position where he could do it. So he did it. Although when Kathy and I were watching it the whole time, I kept thinking, this just feels like Abe Sapien fan fiction. It really, right. <laughs> really does. <laughs> like, it really does. But it was a great movie. It's hard to separate him from Abe Sapien when you know that he did the the Hellboy movies and all that, you know? I mean, yeah. I, I guess I'm a little too heavy-handed with it. Like, yeah, definitely. There's no doubt. But I mean, I'm not trying to be disingenuous about it or anything like that. Right. I just oh, mean, Yeah, for me, for me, it's all just all fun, you know right. what I mean? Yeah. I mean, Gamma del Toro is a great film. No, he's amazing. We have all of his movies. We we have the box set. We have every single one of his movies on Blu-ray. So yeah, we love his work. Super good. We had some feedback on Abe Sapien to The Last Man. That was one that we read a long time ago. Welcome, book club member. 
Ryan Yule said, I was driving through Payson, Arizona today, so of course I pulled over to take a photo of the entering sign from the cover of Abe Sapien number 9 to share with you guys. It matches exactly. And so he posted a picture of that on our Facebook, so you can check that out. But yeah, it's exactly the same as on the cover of Abe Sapien number 9. So that's really cool. Yeah, Yeah. you know that Scott Alley and crew drove through that area. That's great. Wow. We had some feedback on Hellboy, Mass, and Monsters. Jerry Turnbull said... Jerry Turnbull. He said, Matt is in for a great treat when he gets a hold of those Starman issues. Oh, yeah. Nice. I'm excited for you to read all that stuff, Matt. Oh, me too. Yeah, definitely. Because what I did read was, like, random. Okay. You know, like, I read it for a few months, or I bought, like, four or five issues at a time, and I never really collected it. So, yeah, it's going to be cool. Drew Campbell said, as far as other Hellboy crossovers, there are also a few issues of Savage Dragon. Yeah, so we didn't mention that. Archie vs. Predator has a backup story where Hellboy meets Sabrina. I didn't know about okay. that. Okay. What? I want to check that out. And he said, let's not forget the wonderful John Byrne character, Babe, who met Abe oh. Sapien in issue two of her series. Okay. Uh, So thank you, Drew Campbell, for that. Yeah, I'm going to have to cook up some other crossover episodes down the line. Babe. (laughs) (laughs) I would have loved if we could have... I mean, the timelines didn't add up right, but if we could have... What's-his-face? God, what's-his-face? One of the dudes who played Hellboy... I mean, at the height of Buffy's success... I do believe that those oh, guys, yeah, one of those two guys, would have been cool enough. We talked about a Buffy to make Hellboy an appearance. crossover. You know, for some reason, and I just can't get this out of my head. I've always wanted to see Hellboy versus the aliens, the Xenomorphs. Okay, and they're a dark horse property, also. I mean, obviously, you could do all this. I would this love in the to comics. see that. I don't know why. You can do I just the alien crossover. You can do the Buffy crossover. <laughs> that can all occur in the comics. You know, that can all that can all occur in the comics. But the show was set up as a like. Right. Sometimes you can do a monster of the week, and sure. sometimes you can have a guy come help you. And I mean, there were so many like demons with super good makeup on that show. Sure, I really yeah. feel like that could have been. It really could have. It thing, could have happened. You yeah. know, but I don't know. And it's always a thing of like, no, not that hell, the other hell. And he like lights a cigar, and she's like, "What? No, never mind. Don't forget it. Anyway, like you know, it could be. be awesome. It's they just explain it like that. It just takes a second. Yeah, that's know? really great. That's very. Uh, that's a very Joss Whedon. Yeah quippy response he's always people are always quipping i'm okay with quips i'm okay with it i think i mentioned this i get like with all the crossovers i'm like okay yeah yeah <laughs> let's let's that's get fair. back to the let's that's, get back to hellboy that's right. a fair opinion right. to have I hear you. that's fine if if you make a hellboy comic i'll buy it if you make a bprd comic i'll buy it so if instead of a Hellboy or a BPRD comic, you do just random Hellboy meets Sabrina, then I'm like, that could have been a Hellboy comic. Right, right. <laughs> do you Hellboy, want my Hellboy money or not? <laughs> <laughs> Crossovers can be really fun, like Judge Dredd versus Alien versus Predator. Sure. I thought that was like, okay, this is going to be so over the top, but it was amazing. Oh, I, I got to check was a that great one out. Mini. I haven't seen that one. Yeah, I mean, I'm really ago. into that stuff. I did like the Batman Predator thing. Oh, Batman Predator is yeah. awesome. Yeah, that's another good one. I did like the RoboCop Terminator crossover. That was a good one, too. I was just yeah. thinking about that one. Spawn and Batman, that was good. Oh, oh. yeah. Classic the Im- crossovers. The image one, not the DC one. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Jeez. Drew Campbell said... 
Based on a bit of Googling and piecemeal translation, I'm pretty sure the book Strobel takes from the Black School is Flama Recondidus, The Secret Fire. Ah, I told you you could translate that Greek. I told you Drew Campbell, book club member. I don't know if the Roman numeral 9 at the bottom of the book title was supposed to be a Roman numeral or a word. It doesn't translate when I enter the whole title. Maybe it's like a volume of right. it, like an encyclopedia type of deal. It translates as flames of fish, nice. which seems meaningful. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. totally. This yeah. may also shed some light onto why... Aduet de Fabwa wanted Abe and the Universal Machine. The book apparently contains secrets of what Abe is, and the Marquis might actually have had two copies of the book. If you look at the end of issue three of the Universal Machine, as the Marquis is handing Kate the secret fire, in the background there's another book, and it's showing that same picture of Oana's that we saw Strobel read from. This might actually explain why the Marquis ended up offering the book to Kate in return for Abe. He didn't really need a second copy. Yeah, so I thought that was so interesting. So um, I have to go back and check out that detail. He also said the heroes fighting each other as soon as they meet trope has been around long since before Frank Miller. Stanley used it a lot in the early days of Marvel. For example, Spider-Man number one has a fight between him and the Fantastic Four. Oh, yeah. I don't know why I didn't remember that. <laughs> the first Avengers comic was them going after the Incredible Hulk, right? Right, right. Or something like that, yeah. And now he's an Avenger. I mean, I know it's a trope, but it also makes sense of like, who are you? What's that? What are you doing? Yeah. What's going on? It's all, it's all very three's company. The way, well, it could be like, you know, like, it could be a bad guy. I don't know. And- oh, I love that. So last week we put out the Mark Tweedell bat signal and oh, did he deliver. All right. <laughs> oh, nice. Yeah. I love how you were like, Matt, use your mom's Facebook and <laughs> see what Mark is saying right now. Oh, yeah. That was awesome. I sent you a picture of the post where yeah. underneath it says like 25 comments or something like that. I was like, holy oh, shit, we right. got a lot of feedback. Okay. <laughs> so I'm going to space Mark Tweedell's feedback throughout as we talk about the different stories. He said, it's a pleasure to re-experience these stories through the eyes of Aubrey and Danielle. Aww. Thanks, Mark. He also said, you need not question when BPRD and Abe Sapien are happening in relation to each other. I've already put them into chronological order for you. Okay. So we were wondering (laughs) that last week. (laughs) So thank you, Mark. All right. Regarding the Black School, he said, I love Matt's observation about the butterfly. The thematic stuff matters. I love how this issue builds on the transformation of J.H. O'Donnell and how those that have sold their souls to the House of the Fly are transformed into flies. It doesn't directly explain what went on in the transformation of J.H. O'Donnell, but it still expands on our understanding of it. Mignola does this sort of stuff all the time, having stories that echo others without directly referencing them, so that we have a deeper understanding that is felt more than it is consciously processed. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah, I, like I like that. that. Yeah. yeah. Deep, bro. Can can you imagine the void this community would have without Mark? Oh, I know. <laughs> and it's it, been right? that way for like no, 10 years? really. He, Is he's that possible? Been a, he's been a long-standing <laughs> member, you know. And then he's so humble about it that when he gets recognized for it, he's like, "Oh, but you know, Case helped me." 
learn oh, about the, learn about this stuff and you know okay that's we that's do owe like us a as, case as well that's as noble as it is annoying because he is <laughs> very very I, I mean come on he's the keeper of the flame at this point this really? one's for a case touch your drinks together and drink them and also we'll we're gonna we're gonna be and also mark tweedell as well yeah sneak it in there yeah we're having some san arnold daydream here he also said mar boss master of the school also known as bar boss we laughed about Strobel saying that at last yeah. last week. Yeah. He said this is a nice bit of character work. Even in the state of uncertainty, Strobel finds a way to awkwardly slip in this extra bit of knowledge he's gleaned. He's incapable of not bragging on some level. He's basically <laughs> saying, I know your common name, but I also know your lesser known name too. All right. <laughs> Weird flex, but okay. I also love the understated magic of Gustav Strobel. It makes his scenes feel dreamlike. We had some feedback on Ape Sapien regressions. Nathaniel Green said, This was a big reveal for me. Been rethinking Broom ever since. Nicholas Orizaga said, This whole scene is heartbreaking. Goddamn, Broom is a cold-hearted bastard, regardless of his motives. Yeah, yeah. He's, kind of a, he's kind of a dick. I don't know. It kind of makes me wonder why he didn't say anything. Yeah, and I think somebody mentions that. Um, Drew Campbell says regarding that statement. Drew uh, regarding, Campbell. Remember when we saw the Sacred Heart, and then next to it was something written, and I didn't know what it meant. Yeah. So Drew Campbell was able to find that. Thank you so much. All right. I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world. But still, I am not what I once used to be, and by the grace of God, I am what I am, by John Newton. So that's what was written on that board. Apparently, this quote has been paraphrased in hymns, and that's probably what was on the wall in the hardware store. It seems like a pretty meaningful quote when taken in the context of Abe's story. How about this for Obscure Connections? The novel, Prisoner of My Desire, that we found on the nightstand when Abe is looking for batteries. Remember we talked about that? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Okay, that same author, Joanna Lindsay, she wrote another novel called, wait for it, Secret Fire. Whoa, shit. Surely that's no coincidence. Oh, man. Oh, Drew Campbell, you were so awesome. Drew Campbell, book club member. Man, like it, turned into an episode of Lost. Right? I know, yeah. <laughs> That's one of the things that just seems to make this world so rich is like every little thing is something right. thread you could go down. Yes. And just look at the contributions from it's almost like there's a whole nother podcast going on. Yes. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Like, we couldn't possibly come up with all of this stuff on our own. No, and that's what makes uh, this whole community just so special. It's been amazing. That's why it's a book club. So you have to read it, and then you... No, I'm just kidding. But I I never take this stuff for granted. You know what I mean? (laughs) No, of course. Maybe I'm just feeling sentimental because I've had a couple beers or because it's Aubrey's birthday, my best friend for almost 20 years now. But I don't take this stuff for granted. It's been amazing to have everybody just make... The podcast is better and better every week with all your contributions and all the knowledge and insight that you bring to our discussion. And we talk to y'all yeah. all the time. Some of y'all like almost every day. Now. Right. So it's. It's great. Yeah. And Matt Strackbine. Yeah. We love you, Matt. Aww. I love you guys too. Aww. Aww. Drew Campbell said on the topic of splinter removal, 
when my oldest daughter was little, she got a splinter one time, <laughs> and it was pretty deep, and nothing sticking out to grab with tweezers. So we Googled what to do. The suggestion that ended up working was to tape a piece of banana peel over the splinter overnight. Sounds weird, but it seemed to work. Okay. Hmm. Interesting. I heard of right? that one. Interesting. Yeah. Telling you warm water and Epsom salt. Sure. Just, yeah. That's just that's... let it soak. Yeah. If it's one that you can't get out with twi- tweezers, are my first like go to. If you can't get it out with that, yeah, soaking it usually works for me. But I haven't heard the banana one yet. That's yeah. I bet there's so many. <laughs> I bet there's so many. Give us a hey, you damn guys with y'all's. Well, we did, and yeah. Drew Campbell did. He delivered. Thank but I mean, you. more of them. I want. I want more of these weird banana peel things. That is super strange. I love it. Regarding regressions, tells from the Chris said, "I love this cover." I had the original in my hands at New York City Comic Con. Oh, if I was a rich man, I would have bought it. <laughs> Jason Abaddon said, poor Abe, skewered like a fish stick. Why, though? Why would the professor keep call and the tapes from Abe? Broom done Abe wrong, real wrong. <laughs> yeah, so why Why would he? That's a great question. I think he was just holding the cards really close. You yeah. know, like he... Disinformation in the wrong hands is dangerous. Mm, and disinformation in the hands of somebody who doesn't know quite what they're messing with is even worse, right? Because you could do harm unintentionally. Yeah. And I think, like, the more he discovered, the more he cataloged it. So clearly he was going to do something with it. But, like, maybe it just got out of hand. Maybe it was like, great, how do I bring it up now, you know? Right. Like, Like, when's the right moment ever and then when you when it goes on for that long you're like well now i'm gonna look like i was hiding it you know right it just became an impossible thing yeah maybe maybe he was thinking that um because like what in 82 he was only out of the tube for a couple of years at that point right maybe he just felt like he was um i don't know i don't want to say like maybe he thought abe just wasn't ready for the information yet right okay. and right. like let's say he discovered about the call thing it was like, let's say Broom had still been alive when Abe discovered Call. Do you think that maybe he would have imparted some information on him, to him then? Right. Well, that's what I was thinking about was like, okay, so in 94, he was going on the Cavendish expedition. Right. So I think he was kind of like, let me see what this is all about. You know, let me get some more information on this. And then he got killed by a fucking frog monster. Yeah. yeah. So like, I right. think maybe he might've been still trying to play some preliminary footwork. Yeah. And then like before he could even do anything, I don't know. That's maybe taking an optimist kind of view. Sure. But you know, that's, that's what I was thinking of. Well, also to kind of build on that, I guess um, maybe he was thinking like, if Abe doesn't know this, Abe can, um, become his own kind of person the same way Hellboy. Uh, He'll be free to, not, uh, he won't have these constraints. But it's like, it's one yeah. of those things, it's like, if you don't deal with this thing, well, I mean, you can of, never really be free from it. Like, Well, think of this, if Hellboy had never come to Earth and had been raised in Hell as, you know, like, you're the beast of the apocalypse, you're bringing about it, that's what your fucking arm's going to do, he would probably be indoctrinated with it, and he'd believe that, and he wants to treat, and maybe he's thinking Abe's the same way, like, Abe, you're going to be the... Uh, the, the bridge to the next world, right, blah, 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 right. you know, maybe right. it's just like, well, Abe, you need to be your own person before you become the bridge or something. Right, mm, right. Of course, maybe he was just being a dick, though. Who knows? <laughs> Who knows? Yeah, I mean, uh, but the speculation is part of why we're all here to reflect on it. And, and I think that that has consequences in our own lives. And I think that right. that's yeah. the whole point. Like if you if you don't 
if this stuff doesn't make you feel something, what's the point? So I, I, even if there's no consequence for the story, I still do like reflecting on this stuff and, and talking about it. So good share. He also said Strobel's binding on Ictosapien affecting Abe and him looking at like his former self might show that Strobel can only bind that version of him. Maybe that was the real need Phoenix felt to kill that version to spare Abe from Strobel. So he starts oh. turns Abe starts turning back into the previous version of Abe right. when Strobel's trying to bind him. And so what Jason's saying is like, maybe that's why Phoenix felt compelled to shoot him. So he could evolve and or else Strobel would have been able to bind him in that moment. Oh shit. Oh, that's geez. really interesting to think about. Yeah. He says, telling you Strobel could only control that intermediate stage of Abe. His spell only works on guys that wear sweaters. <laughs> now you got me Good thinking one. about this because I have such a resentment for Phoenix. I'm just like, I don't like this character. I don't like her. Right. I don't fucking care. And now, if that's true, because she does have that thing where she can like kind of right, yeah, see yeah. stuff. Man, so maybe that's maybe you're right. Interesting. Yeah, interesting to think about. You can see the I gears. Yeah, the like gears churning. are turning in your yeah. head. Yeah, because well, except for like when she shot Abe. She's pretty much been a decent character. Yeah, I think. but she was saying the stuff she was saying was like, "I gotta kill you because you are gonna be the thing that is the bad thing, and now I gotta get rid of you because you're the bad thing." But did so, she even say that? She just said like, "He's like, I am here to." He's like, "I'm Abe or something." And she's like, "I know who you are," and she's like, "Bam." Yeah, but wasn't she saying something at one point about maybe she was saying it to Devin? He's gonna be the guy who does all this stuff. So I had to fucking I had a bad feeling about him. I had to kill him. Yeah. Mm. I don't know. I forget what her exact dialogue right. was in that. I'll have to go back over everything yeah. and give it a reread and, and, and see what I come up with. I, I'm going to go back and look for that exact dialogue because what she right. says is very, yeah. like, I I want to say, like, she says, like, she was compelled to do it. Okay. You know? Yeah. I want to like this character. I want to like her because she seems to be just in it now and it seems like we can't get rid of her. So I would like to like her because she's, she plays such a prominent role and she's hanging out with Liz a lot. Right. So I want to like this character a lot. So I've, I've, I'm trying real hard to be like, okay, let's get over it. And Phoenix right. is great. I like her. Like I'm, I'm trying really hard to find reasons to like this character. So I might be able to take that read and run with it. Mark Tweedell said, so one day I was walking around Brisbane and I just happened to bump into Scott Alley. Okay. <laughs> Weird. Oh, shit. All right. That's awesome. It was an Weird. odd. Yeah, he says it was an odd moment. We were both walking at the same intersection. I looked to my left and did a comical double take. Anyway, we got to talking and Scott pulled out his phone and showed me the cover of Ape Sapien Regressions. Awesome. Oh. No solicitations, just the cover. I remember immediately thinking of that moment of the drowning. And so at the very end, the professor asks Abe if he remembers anything from inside the church. And we see that jellyfish angel. But Abe says he doesn't remember anything. And the professor puts his hand on his shoulder and he says, it's all right, my boy. You did well. I'm proud of you. And then Abe is left like smiling on the pier. Right. But so we know later that he's going to go back and and hypnotize him and get all the details of it. Right. So Weird. that is so interesting to kind of rethink about that. Mark said, when I read The Drowning, I thought that Broom had let Abe's comment go rather easily, and yet there was a sense that he wasn't done with it either. It was a tight close-up, and then the way he lingers in the next two panels. I can't quite explain it, but I could feel that there was more to it back then when I read it. 
Anyway, the cover to Ape Sapien 32 was an instant confirmation. That cover is littered with tiny clues. You can see the premise of the story immediately. The words Langdon Call might as well have been a flashy neon sign to me. Holy shit, Professor Broom knew. But it wasn't a twist. That's the best part of the story. We've known for a long time that Broom knew more than he was telling anyone at the Bureau. This was simply a glimpse into how deeply he had explored. I absolutely love that Broom's office is always recognizably the same place. Locations matter. And part of the reason I struggle to read any Marvel or DC superhero title is because whenever Bruce Wayne is in his bedroom, it looks like whoever the artist wants it to look. Peter Parker's apartment is reinvented every single time we see it. But Broom's office, I recognize that place. And the creators are able to use that familiarity to tell a story in yeah. fascinating ways that Marvel and DC simply can't. And evoke emotions and you know things yeah. like yeah. I love that things that you know yeah. are key to telling a story. <laughs> And just like Matt brought up last week, that story where they go back and they actually adopt Mignola's style to redraw his office mm. again and focus on that tape recorder. You know, I actually never thought about that before, but I mean, it is really a good point because it really just helps bridge connectivity of the whole story because right. his office always looks the same. You can yeah, tie a feeling you know? to a place. Yeah. yeah. And then, I don't know, because like, I guess like, you know, every time, he's right, every time you do see Bruce... Every time you do see Bruce Wayne's house, it's different. Right. The Batcave always looks a little slightly different. Or I always think of Hush when Jim Lee like drew it completely different and he drew all the different Batmobiles in there and all that kind of stuff. And yeah. Right. And Mark said, I have to point out the color stuff. The moment Vaughn breaks free of Strubble's control, look at the color in the background. Abe's influence suddenly floods in. You also notice Gustav Strobel's color is now green. But this is vivid, unnatural green. He has set his eyes on becoming Abe, and that manifests as a corrupted versions of Abe's colors. I think that in those last moments, as Abe is reverting, that if he had stayed, he would have been transformed back to Call. Uh, so I thought that was interesting, too. So what Mark is saying is that when... Strobel is trying to bind Icto Sapien and Abe finally breaks away. That if he had stayed there, he might have transformed all the way back into right. old Abe, then into Call. So he, wow. he was trying to strip Icto Sapien out of him and putting it into himself. Right. Well, then, and then also, oh. wasn't there, but like, wouldn't it have separated it into Call and then like also the little. Ocean God Sean right. thing. Exactly, you're right. That? Exactly, because then he goes to Saint Sebastian yeah. to get it. Yeah. After that doesn't work. Right. So you're exactly right. Mark says Strobel is trying to hijack Abe's role in events to come. After all. And so, what is the other one? I mean, it was it a different shaman? Are there more than? Is there more than two? That's that's Mark's next comment. As for the spirit in St. Sebastian, I get the feeling Monk Abe wasn't the only monk to ascend to this form, and there are perhaps several others around the world waiting. As far as we know, Abe was the only one to be activated, though, until Strobel corrupts the one in St. Sebastian. It also makes me think, okay, so this, I mean, we know that the Monk Abe didn't renounce his faith, you know, gave his life or something because, you know, for his thing. And so you're going to assume that the other one did something similar and now it's been corrupted by this evil guy, Strobel. Yeah. Or it's just when, when monks are tortured to the point of death, the light, the Vril, 
manifests as an angel. Uh, right. So maybe, you know, how, like, Deadpool's powers came from being tortured. Remember that? Right. Yeah. Okay. Do I have, yeah. I'm not sure I have that right. No, I think. I I think eh, close enough. <laughs> he had to endure a certain amount of pain for his mutant ability to manifest. Um, you want to hear this Devil's Engine, number three of three? Oh, yes. Hardly Do you have Phoenix? that? Yeah. So her and Devin are in that train car, and the Hammerheads are trying to break in. He says, I just want to know why. It's important to me. Was it something you saw in the future? She says, I don't fucking see things. I told you. I get feelings. He said, okay, so what did you feel? I felt like he needed to die. Okay. So she had a feeling that Abe needed to die, not oh, that she needed man. to kill him. Yeah. See how that could get a little messy. That totally so, turns like, it, yeah, yeah, for me. That turns it around. See, I'm I'm looking for any reason, and that's all I needed. I I love it. Yeah, that's, thank you great. for pulling that Absolutely. out. Absolutely. But then here we go again. This. She doesn't know what to do with this ability, and that's exactly what we were talking about with Broom having all this information. Yeah. Sometimes if you don't know what to do with this stuff, it could be harmful. Yeah, and right? she just needs some sort of guidance. And if she had gotten some, right. maybe it we could have done something with it before all this bullshit. But I guess there's no point in worrying about mm. all of that. But it is it does give me a reason to be like, okay, she's on our side. It's fine. Right. It's, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And for her and Liz to have the relationship that's developing, it's like, I want to love this. I want to I want to have a reason to be like, this is so awesome. Yeah, and, yeah. And, I'll, and not, oh, I'm worrying about when the shoe's going to drop, you know? Yes, so. exactly. Mm-hmm. Some feedback on Abe Sapien, Dark and Terrible Deep. Jen Niklas said. Jen Niklas. Book club member. Yeah. You know, as much as I like getting answers, Abe's final reveal being basically, there was no prophecy, you just choose your own destiny, just doesn't sit right with me. Because we have a character for that. He's big, he's red, and he has to work through this all the time, even in death. But okay. Abe was never really about the overarching plot, at least not for me. But I like Strobel's character development. You have to give it to him, he doesn't give up. Fun fact about the male, by the way, the whole black score reminded me of the German fantasy novel Krabat by Pruler. I'm probably butchering that, which is based on a Slavic folktale. There's a young boy, Krabat, works for a miller who's a sorcerer, and it is implied that he sold his soul to the devil. The miller wants to teach Krabat dark magic, and the boy has to fight it off and gets away because his true love helps him escaping. It's a very good book. That you can have fun with without over-analyzing it. But analyzing it makes it even more fun. And knowing Mignola, I think he and Allie reference this story intentionally. Yeah, so I have to check that out. Thank you so much for that, Jen Niklas. Cool, thanks. Jason Abaddon said, This is the ultimate Shanshan origin story. Totally unexpected. I think the Sea Angel is a sort of Hyperborean-era life form. Possibly the origins of Atlantis? The rock-like eggs that we've seen might have been how they survive long eons, the way the frogs can be frozen and or die, only to be thawed and revived come spring. Mark Tweedell said, Holy shit, this arc is stunning. Sebastian Fumara is absolutely killing it on these pages too. After reading this arc, if you go back to The Shape of Things to Come, that story has so much more to it. Yeah, so I need to go back and look at that. Yeah. Abe and Shanshin were friends. I love this so much. And now we can finally talk about the crucifixes in the Dark and Terrible cycle. Look back through those past issues and you'll see crucifixes keep popping up behind Abe. 
rarely in front of him because it's thematically linked to something he's not ready to explore or acknowledge. Back when Dark and Terrible began, I assumed the crucifixes were representation of the church in St. Sebastian, but no, it links even further back to his time as an ancient human monk when he was crucified by those people worshipping Ogdraham's spirits. Yeah, so when he was tied up to those obelisk or whatever. Ah. Suddenly, Phoenix's vision from BPRD Hell on Earth, The Return of the Master, makes it a little more sense. It's not a vision of the future, but this weird metaphorical soup of past and future mixing together. There was a thing Matt talked about, the ON Society seer, something like, she doesn't know what she's talking about, but she's right. I think that is basically every prophecy in the Mignolaverse summed up. They are right, but none of them know what they're talking about. <laughs> and Mignola uses context to make prophecy utterly transform while still remaining true. Yeah, so I love that. Thank you so much. That puts so much into perspective. Yeah. Yeah. And so I actually use that Return of the Master connection in one of our posts this week. Because I thought that was so amazing. So when Panya tries to hypnotize Phoenix to look into her mind, yeah. Phoenix sees a vision of a tied up and being tortured oh right yeah and now we know that his ancient shaman form was actually tied up and tortured like that oh right yeah fuck i love it when all the pieces fall together yeah it's <laughs> nice he said one little nitpick the ancient people were just regular humans worshiping Ogdraham spirits not cold people the cold people only show up in one panel in a flashback on bprd hell on earth the abyss of time yeah, so oh, thank you much. I thing, yeah. thought they came the cold people. Like, those are the people that become the cold people. That's, That's how I was looking at right, it. Right, right. I think Maybe I just not. got that a little confused, yeah. Some things I forgot to talk about last week. So, Matt, you had a thing about Karumba, right? Remember when oh, yeah. Starman says Karumba? Yeah, I just think he said that because they're in South America. Right, right. He's just being yeah. a goof. That's all. <laughs> 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 Yeah, but I love that. I wanted to make sure that we talked about it. I was talking to Matt about this after the fact when I went back and edited last week's episode. I didn't feel like we talked about the Fumara art as much because so much of that issue and so much of those stories are like these pages of just artwork. And it is so beautiful and immersive and it really kind of like puts you into that space but I think we were so tied up in all the story threads that were being yeah. tied up and all this mythology that was being referenced. I just kind of was a little worried that we didn't do that justice. But that artwork is amazing by the Fumaras. And um, I really enjoyed it. I'm, I'm glad that Mark Tweedo also commented on the artwork and his feedback. Yeah, I mean, the, the artwork in the Fumaras brothers, they, oh my God. I mean, it's just so fucking killer. Yeah. I, don't know, I mean, it's just, it, it, I don't really know how to describe it. It's just, it's beautiful to look at and it's very expressive and it tells the story very well. Yeah. And it's like, you know, even though there's no dialogue, I can still, I'm still reading the story, even though I'm reading the artwork. Exactly. Yeah. And, and for me, it's almost come to, I've talked about this before, it's almost come to symbolize Abe. Yeah. Like when I think of Abe, I think of that art style and that characterization and all the emotional aspects that they've lent to that. I guess it just goes to show that, you know, like, you know, Mike Mignola really just knows to find where to find the best fucking talent. Or maybe, right. you know, like he has the people to help him get, but I mean, everybody who works on his books are fucking a yeah. plus stellar I, I can't believe well, how like lucky we are. Well, like attracts light, to... too. I think that a lot of um, 
you know, artists who admire one another's work are, are bound to be like, yeah. well, we should work together on something. And I yeah, think that that's, true, true, that's super true. good. I like that. But I just feel like we're so lucky to be able to read all of this yeah. amazing story with this beautiful artwork. Yeah, yeah, it's been great. Yeah. So when when you and I were talking about that, though, John, it, it made me go back and look at the initial notes that I had taken when we first started with the Abe series. And I had written some notes about the art that I probably didn't get to right like on air so and it's funny because we can go back to the transformation of J.H. O'Donnell that arc I think that was Max's first appearance right right that's in this yes. universe and you know he was handling like the flies yes right yeah. and then we're we're getting that in Abe again so that seems like very full circle to me oh right? yeah and deliberate to talk about planning right. But at the time, when I first read J.H. O'Donnell, the only impression I was left with was that, okay, well, Manola and company plan to use a wide variety of artists, and that's a very good thing to me. I, there was no... Right. I mean, maybe they said something like, oh, you'll <laughs> see him again, but there wasn't any definite, he's going to be doing an Abe Sure, series, right? wow. And so now on Abe, between Max and Sebastian, you, you can see these guys are enlarge what makes this a true horror comic and any other art style might play down some of the writing and the story or uh soften it to the point where it didn't have the same effect the same depiction of awfulness that's going on right in, in the comic and whether it's you know abe stuff or shrobel or just the whole hell on earth thing these guys are selling it their style is what I've always thought of as like old school horror comics, right? Not mainstream, commercial, clean. It's yeah. more artful than that. It's, yeah, it's, no, you're absolutely right. I never thought about direct. it that way. Yeah. Well, and I mean, that was the kind of stuff that was foreign to me and my palette when I was a kid collecting comics like Steve Bissett or Bernie Wrightson on Swamp Thing. Right. I couldn't handle that sort of raw detail or scratchy texture. All those like abstract shadows and movements. Over time, my sensibilities adjusted, of course. And now I can recognize that same vibe or style is alive and well in the Abe series. And that is maybe the coolest part aside from all these huge revelations that we've gotten. Right, right. Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. I don't know, it's almost like as we switch back and forth between the titles, when we get to the Abe stuff, you kind of know it's going to be a certain way. You know, it's kind of going right. to have that dreamlike, slow-paced quality that has really become, like I said, come to define that character for me. All right, and so before we move on, Matt, I wanted you to plug all your things because you've got a new webcomic and all that. So, yeah, give a plug to your stuff. Still doing the Letterhack podcast, which is on podbean.com. You can just look up Letterhack's podcast. Yeah, I've been enjoying it as always. I, I've revealed a lot of stuff in the latest episode. Oh, that hijinks one is crazy. Yeah, you got to listen to that I was like, I don't one. know if I should talk about that. <laughs> I know, stuff, I don't know if you, you know? should have talked about it either, but it's a good listen. Go check that out. Yeah, well, and... I'll have to listen to that soon. Well, and if it comes down to it, I made it all up. So, <laughs> but, uh, So I did launch a new comic strip that I'm releasing at least three times a week, maybe more on Monday, All right. Wednesday, and then I'll do like a, like a Sunday-sized one on Saturdays. Great. And it, 
it's called webcluse which is a play on the word recluse but for people who just stay online all the time and never leave the house <laughs> so i've been doing a lot of comics based on independent news media outlets specifically for the left and this is my original take on all this stuff that's out there, but in sort of a Doonesbury fashion. Sure. If you know sure, what I mean yeah. by that. And so, you know, when you watch all these different YouTube clips, it's just a guy in front of a microphone looking right at you, right? That is a comic panel. And so I've always wanted to do that. And I've just released it last week. We're going into the second week tomorrow. And I'm going to collect them all on my website, matchtrackmind.weebly.com. So if you ever want to, you can just go there and read them all at once. Nice. nice. Awesome. I'm excited to see that as it goes on. I've been enjoying it so far. Yeah, same here. Nice. Yeah, they're really good cast. <laughs> cool. Thanks. All right. And now we're going to get to our book club episode for the week. This week we're talking about BPRD, Hell on Earth, Flesh and Stone. This is a five-issue arc published from November 2014 to March 2015, written by Mignola and Arcudi. Illustrated by James Heron, colors by Dave Stewart, letters by Clem Robbins, and interconnecting covers by Lawrence Campbell. And um, this is very so, much my shit. I know. So <laughs> yeah. before this is uh, all fan so favorite. Fucking excited. When Aubrey came over earlier, I had all the covers laid out for you to check out that interconnecting piece. There was so actually a print. Nice. I think they made a print based on that. I okay. don't have that one, but yeah, it's really great. I love interconnecting covers. I mean, they're just great. <laughs> and Lawrence Campbell did an awesome job on this one. All right. So we open up in, you know, the Gal Denar world, right? Yeah, I'm so excited. This opening panel, too, is so fucking gorgeous. I stared at this for so long. Set and setting is so important. And um, the way it's framed and everything, oh, it's just so good. Yeah, and we see the whole, like... They're cinematic. We see their whole view. We see, like what look like woolly mammoth or something mm -hmm. like that. Yep. And we see these painted stones and they're being arranged on a bank. Well, no, they were arranged. They were arranged and they're being picked up and skipped across the lake by right. these kids, right? Because, you know, hey, why don't we pick up these particular <laughs> ones? Well, I think that's what it is, is that they stood out and they were right. the right shape for skipping, I guess, so that they were, you know, just... I mean, to be fair, they're just kind of like there among a bunch of other rocks. Sure. I feel like if you're gonna, if you're gonna <laughs> lay things out to dry, first of all, keep them nearby where you're gonna be at, and then second of all, put them on a surface that kind of <laughs> lets people know, hey, this is something going on here. Right. I don't right. know. I don't know. I'm not trying to. But those kids got to know that the shaman paints stuff like this. Okay, you so know? you think it's like a close-knitted community where these yeah. kids know what's going on, and they're I mean, like, they're hey, let me yeah. doom our village's warriors to certain death <laughs> and make sure that I don't survive. I'm pretty sure that's exactly what they were thinking. Really? <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, kids do dumb shit. Right. Um, yeah. Blowing leaves and autumn, some of my favorite things to draw. Oh I love yeah, it. Yeah, that's so really good. nice. What a nice touch. We see Gal Denar in a cave, and he's getting painted by the Spirit Father. Gal asks him how much of his teaching he is expected to remember. All of it that you can, the Spirit Father says. Come with me, there is more. As they walk out towards the water, they talk, and we learn that the hunts are growing thinner. Not because of disease or the cold people, something else is happening. The Spirit Father says there are other enemies. I don't understand completely myself, he says, but the signs, 
boys, what are you doing? I think it's more like, boy, what are you doing? (laughs) (laughs) And so we see those boys that were skipping stones, and they were using the special ones that the Spirit Father had laid out to dry. And they were being painted in that same fashion that Galdenar was being painted too. Although I will have to agree with Danielle, if you're going to be painting special stones, don't just leave them lying around <laughs> yeah. on the fucking riverbank. Yeah, I mean, they're just on the ground with a bunch of other rocks. I and, don't know. And the Spirit Father says they were to be a necklace of protection. I have to get them, he exclaims. And so he tries to go after them in the water. Galdenar says that he will go get them. Well, I think I think he wasn't offering to get them. I think he was just like, look, first of all, you can't go in there. You're going to get sick. And then where's that going to leave the rest of us? Just stay here and give me some blessings. It'll be fine. And I'll just, I'll do the rest. Uh, I think what I he see. means is, I'll just go into battle and fuck shit up. Okay. It'll be yeah, fine. Yeah, right. Yeah. Right. You guys like, nah, you just at least wait till I get some more made, you know, kind of a thing. And so. Well, look how he's holding his sword out, right? Yeah. Yeah. I feel like he's looking at his arm because didn't a ancient warrior spirit go into his arm? Oh, right. Mm, okay. Yeah, you're right. I feel like he's like, and okay, I can yeah. do the rest. And he's right. like holding his sword, but sure. he's looking at his arm like me and. And this spirit spirit is still in there. That's the weirdest thing. And I also want to point out the art has been amazing on this. Oh, yeah. It's so expressive, that James Heron style. I I really feel like I I equate the Galdinar thing with his work, with his art. Yes. So expressive. No, my men cannot wait, Galdinar says. I have to show them strength, not hesitation. Explain to me what you know about what we will see. Then say words for us tonight by the fires. Pray that we find what takes the bison and deer from us, and more that we bring home food for winter. And all this is just yeah. amazing, right? I love right? the texture of the dried paint, how it's kind oh, of yeah. crackles oh. with the movement of the skin. So you know it's not a dye, it's an actual, like it's caked on there, and it's ah, it's just... Now, is it more important to him at this point that he be a leader? and have magic and blessings like he needs that stuff but is he saying what's most important now is for me to lead my men right and to i guess for that morale right? yeah he's saying he can't inspire them to go fight to the death to protect the village unless they believe in him and they don't think he's if yeah. they see hesitation he he thinks that it's bad for that i guess right yeah yeah that's how, how i kind of took it yeah, yeah. I, I also like how we can see the stars here in a way that every person that used to look up at night would see that. Oh, right. Yeah. Right. The, nice you'd touch. see the galaxy because there's absolutely no light pollution right now. So anyway, that's very just cool. very interesting. And then we cut to Howard's and we're like in present day. I love the, I love the cut transition from the one face to the another. I know. Right. Oh, so good. And he sits atop this stone pillar and we see Enos and Johan in a military vehicle Enos talks about liking the new body armor and easier access to ammo. Any deal is a compromise, Johan says. Enos says, I don't need a reminder about that, Joanne. <laughs> and he That's ex- the second time he used that. Right. And he explains that after all they've been through, he'll do cleanup for the Air Force and face rats and maggots over hammerheads any day you want me to. So basically, they have this trade, right? They do this kind of hazardous work, hazmat work, and they get all this sweet gear and supplies. We see Eno suiting up 
in one of those hazmat suits from Pickens County Horror. And he says, They clear the town, designate it a dead zone, and then the flyboys dust for vermin and start the reclamation process. And if they do see any monsters, they'll get bombed from above. And if it gets me this sweet dragon skin to boot, and he pounds the body armor, I'm on board. And it also made me think about all the stuff that Enos has seen. He saw all the action in Wasteland, Rain in the Black Flame, and don't forget where he was almost run over by a giant monster in the Broken Equation. And you think that would have given this person some sort of perspective or (laughs) anything like that, but no, he has zero fucking chill. And I'm just, God, you fucking... (laughs) So then this one agent, I don't know if we've met him before, he says Oscar on his uniform there. He comes up and he says to... Enos, listen to you with that stuff. What's the big deal? We fight monsters. Nobody ever shoots at us. And then both Enos and Johan say at the same time, You "You weren't weren't in New York. York. (laughs) (laughs) Because they were all shot at by those Zinko guards. But that's a great moment right there. So I'm sitting here looking at these like... uh hazmat uniform suits that they're looking at and it kind of starts to remind me that vision that uh, liz was having towards at the end of the plague of frogs i think it was Mm -hmm. um you know like she's like seeing the uniforms looking different and abe's in his his new form right okay the the carrier is smashed oh king of fear right okay yeah so i feel like feel like we're rushing towards that you know? right okay yeah, oh, yeah yeah good way to bring that back so then we cut over to new york i think this is supposed to be the chrysler building where the black flame was at the top of before we see that it's all crushed in okay. the distance right so we get to this one building and it looks like they've built this memorial to marsden right we see evelyn coming up she was the assistant and i guess now she's the head of zinco and she's leaving some flowers there and they've like made a statue to this fucking guy and everything yeah. isn't that crazy this, this whole thing it's just seems pathetic. over the top gaudy tacky and so she's like there's a zinco guard outside and she's like has he been here today? And they're like, no. And she's like, oh, it's hard to find flowers. But let him know those are my flowers. And he's like, I always do, ma'am. Figure she's talking about the Black Flame, right? When she's like, has right. he been yeah. here today? Because we know that the Black Flame and Marsden, you know, had a relationship. You know, they were partners or whatever. So I guess the Black Flame still, you know, is mourning him or whatever. I guess he has some emotion. or She's he trying to get there. some some points or yeah, whatever. Exactly. Don't you think he ordered this? statue probably the exact yeah Yeah. but would he be fucking concerned with that or like isn't he all i'm beyond this realm and shit or is he still i like that though i like that he's he would still be super petty about this weird (laughs) earthly concerns even though he's like but i'm also beyond everything i don't know he is at his core pathetic. Yeah, it's true. He yeah. Is a oh, total for sure. Loser. <laughs> right on. <laughs> and so, as Evelyn is standing there with the guard, this gruesome monster starts to run up. And so, it's one of these mutated things that people turn into when they're touched by the breath of change or they're infected or whatever. And so the guard is about to shoot it. And then these scientists run up. They're like, please don't. Don't worry. We got him. And so they're all, they're trying to wrangle this thing. One of the scientists comes up to Evelyn and she says, it's just that we have so few of the mutated men in the city. The fogs never reach Manhattan. And to catch one alive, it's very difficult. But this one trickled down in from the Bronx, we think. Pretty good shape, too. You're a Nazi scientist. Right. So, so they're trying you to should capture feel, this. You should feel bad about that. And so... 
as Evelyn is talking to the scientist, she's like, why do you need this? And then so the guard's like, he's behind you, right, or whatever, right? And then so we turn around, there are these smoking footprints, and we reveal the black flame. Oh, man. This work by James Heron is amazing, right? So he's a little bit different now after after that huge explosion event at the end of Reign of the Black Flame. It seems like he's been damaged a little bit or affected by that giant blast that came down from the sky. That is a truly iconic shot, though. It's really good. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And so he comes up to the statue of Marsden and he just says, go. And then so they all run off. But even like his maw is like rows of teeth yeah. and everything. It's so weird. He's got double mouth. So then we cut to this really picturesque scene. Idyllic we see this, even. Yeah, we see this sailboat and there's a couple in there. They're talking in Russian. And so this is Polina. Recall that that was the name of Yosef's wife, you know, when he left. And so they have a little kid there. You know, they have this really wonderful scene. And some pelicans. Yeah, we see some great wildlife out here. And we also see this um, sturgeon, right, floating under the water. The little boy says, is that a monster? And Yosef in this form, I guess, he says, that's the old man of the Volga. Old Man of the Volga River is a famous photograph taken by Russian photographer Mark Markov Grinberg in 1939. It depicts a sea captain looking guy. He's got like the hat and the mustache and the big bushy beard. And behind him we see people, a boat, and the Volga River. So I thought that was interesting because yeah. this sturgeon has like whiskers yeah. or whatever, right? Yeah. I like that he's familiar with this sturgeon, this particular sturgeon. That's right. very yeah. sweet. I like that. I like how he, he's like, he wouldn't harm you in a thousand years. So the subtext of that is, so we should leave him be. Right. He's yeah. he's a special character around here. You know, it's interesting. Well, Polina even takes out a harpoon and she's like, oh, like, what the he, fuck? he would feed us for a month. And he's like, we aren't hungry. And I like the stories. Yeah. He, he, well, and I, he even goes as far as to say, how could I do that? Right. How could I possibly do that? Like you said, he says, well, we aren't hungry, so we don't need to hunt this. Yeah. That attitude kind of shows us who he is. It's interesting. Yeah. He looks into the water and he says into his reflection, let the old man rest and let's sail on. Let's just go on like this. And so we also get this like kind of like he's waking up for a dream like uh, quality, yeah. you know, and then we reveal Yosef. He's getting like a transfusion again. And he's also got a suit upgrade as well. I really like this about uh, Yosef and, you know, the way that he he, dream- he still dreams about his wife right. and he dreams about the kid and the life that they never had. Right, yeah. yeah. It's beautiful, but also sad in a kind of way. Yeah, it yeah. really is. Oh, super sad, yeah. And so he wakes up and all the scientists are like, all right, let's get him up. Let's get these tubes out of him. In the sketchbook, and we'll talk about it later, but one of the things I thought was interesting is they talk about how they intentionally made his suit more bulky because it's like the thing that's keeping him alive is also like a prison yeah. as well. Yeah. Don't they mention something like an iron lung? Oh, right. Yeah, they said Iron Man 1 style iron lung. Yeah. I mean, he's practically a Frankenstein, except that he can think and reason. Exactly. Yeah. Have we seen him since New York? No, the last thing that we saw was Leonid getting him out at the end of Reign of the Black Flame. Yeah, I assume this is just like 
you know, the aftermath of that, they've had to like build his new suit. Right. And, you know, he's got to recover because he lost a lot of that juice. Right. <laughs> juice. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, the scientists explained to him his new containment suit and he's like, ah, so I'm still alive. By your unique standards, yes. Right. My unique standards, he says. Have the assistant director come to my office for an update. I'm sure I've missed a great deal, he says. And he walks back to his office and he sees Vivara again. The, so remember, she fucking starts in right away. As exactly. soon as he walks in, she's just, she's ready. She's firing off little fucking quips at him. Yeah, so we haven't seen her since a cold day in hell. I wonder what she's been up to all this time. Hanging out in the jar. <laughs> yeah, she hasn't had anyone to talk at. She was saying, oh, comrade, you've been gone so long. I expected you might never return. Right. Kind of a deal. She's just teasing him immediately. It's right. And okay. she's like, oh, look at your fine new raiment. Right. So that's an archaic term for clothing. Raymond. Right. It's basically Raymond. That's what she's saying. And she's like, oh, is this all to impress me? No, I don't think that's it. Then you must tell me. Tell me the way you always delight in sharing with me the details of your every journey outside in the world. Tell me, Yosef, where have you been? And he's she's a lot more talkative than yeah. normal. Oh, Yeah. And the way she's got her hands up on the glass yeah, like man. that. She seems very eager. He's being tortured by this fish. I love this panel where he's sitting at his desk. It's over to the side. The way that this panel is arranged tells so much with just so little space. It's, it's really incredible yeah. storytelling here. The rest of the panel is filled with this amazing vision of right of them sailing down the river and all this stuff. And it's just like, it's torturing him. We cut over to Liz and she's trying to dig a hole in the side. And so Phoenix comes up and she's with that boy from that crew that they rescued in Reign of the Black Flame. These were the people that were living in New York. And Bruiser is like licking all over this kid. He's like, oh, get your dog away. Yeah. <laughs> The dog is just very being very friendly and like yeah, you said, like yeah. looking at him and just like, hey, guys, I'm hanging out. And he can't stand it. He's freaking out. Right. And, it's funny. But um, I don't think Liz is digging a hole. She's very clearly turning over the earth. She's tilling the ground. Oh, OK. So yeah. like that's yes. I mean, that's a very anyone who's ever had to dig their own fucking garden is very familiar with this. It's a big, long rectangle. She's doing like one patch at a time. This is a very large area, by the way. Like I said, for anyone who's ever had to actually do this with just sure. a fucking shovel, it's that's a lot. Like yeah. she's not sweating for no reason. Phoenix comes up, she's like, What are you doing here? And she's like, Oh, you know, I'm making a garden. She's like, Oh, a garden, then you better move it out of here because of where it sits with the compound. The sun's not gonna come up till almost noon. If you ever woke up before eleven, you'd know that. Phoenix says. <laughs> <laughs> she's being <Harsh>. sassy. <laughs> And Liz is like, well, what do you know about growing vegetables? And she's like, oh, vegetables. You know, I thought this was for flowers. Oh, you need a bigger plot. Yeah, you're going <laughs> to need this and that and the other. She's She does know, you know what I mean, about this. And she this, starts so. spouting all of her gardening know-how. I like through who this entire talk, Bruiser is just like, you determined to lick that guy. <laughs> yeah, like, sweet baby. He's all like, come here. He like, doesn't understand. Yeah. yeah, he's just being a friendly sweetie pie. And the kid is just like, yeah. come get your dog. And so Phoenix drops all her gardening knowledge. And then she's just like, don't worry about it, Sherman. I'll bail you out when you screw it up. Yikes, rude. <laughs> we cut over to the BPRD team. We see Howard's, TN, and the rest of the crew in their hazmat suits. And I love how Tien's like, hey, Howard, you really should wear your suit while he's smoking a cigarette and he doesn't yeah. even have his helmet Amazing. on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
He's like, never know what kind of alien Ebola junk you might run into. I like how they have another dog with them, too. Oh, yeah, they do. And he's got, like, on a bulletproof vest. (laughs) (laughs) I also like this uh, comment where Johan, he's looking for Enos, and he's like, you all look alike in these suits. (laughs) Because, you know what I mean? He can't tell them apart. But so now we're starting to see something that happens a lot. There's some parallels between these panels and this panel uh-huh. is exactly like the one from earlier yes where uh, he and his men are walking away yes. yeah i'm gonna have to put those together for one of our posts uh-huh. thank you for there's pointing a that dog out. there too yeah. yeah oh i love that for sure well you know what, maybe they, let me give happen some again they probably cleared the area it's safe so he took his thing off and they were like you can bring the dog in now let's say that right there but you they go. Yeah. they cleared okay. it for the dog to come in i don't know we cut over to Enos, and he's just firing the grenade launcher God, and blowing up cars. Fucking... <laughs> I, I just... What a man. I hate that stuff. <laughs> I, 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 I'm surprised he's still alive. I mean, yeah, honestly, man. he's he, he whines, he, he bitches, he fucking does stupid shit like this. That's How crazy. is he not dead yet? What a useless... Oh, it's because he runs. I'm sorry. <laughs> he wears sunglasses at night, even. <laughs> it's just... And so after blowing up this car, he high-fives another agent. Mission accomplished, suckas. Okay. All right, man. <laughs> I love Just... that. Watched one too many black exploitation movies. It's enough. <laughs> agent Enos, what was that, Johannes? A celebration, my man. An act of life-affirming joy. Know the last operation I went out where we didn't lose a single agent? Before New York. I can tell you that. Enos... Wasting ammunition, Johan starts, and he's got his little finger up and everything. (laughs) And Enos is like, what waste? The military, all they do is buy up this stuff. You said it yourself. Weapons and ammo are not an issue. They got their town cleared. We get to blow crap up. That's the deal, right? I just, this this (laughs) fucking guy. (laughs) And so just like he explained earlier, now they're going to come dust the town and start the reclamation process. And so we get some great panels where we see that occur too. And so this last panel is also the exact same shot from earlier where they first entered the town. Oh, okay. I love that. And we see it again immediately in the very next chapter, right? Right, right. right. As we start chapter two, now it's like snowed over the same scene. Wow. That's really cool, right? The skill. <laughs> and we see the BPRD, and they're riding up on horseback. Colder and a well digger's ass out here, Enos complains and we to know Johan. who this is, yeah. It, <laughs> we know who this is even before anyone identifies him as, you know, because he's just fucking complaining. Right. And just shut your fucking mouth. But, How could you be in a unit with this guy? Like, <laughs> especially under the circumstances that they're under. Like, it's it's a survival situation. Everyone should be efficient have good teamwork you know how, how is he in this unit wouldn't they have all gotten together and be like he's got to go man he's got to go get him out of the unit seriously like he he's needs a to- liability yeah, yeah he absolutely yeah. is because wouldn't he have brought morale down or wouldn't he have caused so many mistakes or wouldn't he have i don't know i feel like if i'm the other people in that unit i'd be like talking to my super like hey man can we just can we get this guy out of here can you just send him home I'm surprised nobody's just straight up told him to shut the fuck up. <laughs> yeah, man. I think at this point he's either on the verge of that sort of reprimand or yeah. dismissal. Right. But but it or... needs to be. I mean, the story requires that we have a fucking guy like this going on. Right. Because otherwise, how could character development happen? And how well, could we move right. on with the story? So 
And remember how when Kate accepted Phoenix Mm -hmm. when when she showed up at Colorado Mm -hmm. headquarters? Yeah. My assumption there was, hey, living person, we'll take them. Yeah, yes. As many bodies as we can get. Oh, you ready to use a gun? Great. You can drive a Humvee? Fantastic. And so that's why he's there. You've got field experience in Japan, New York. These are huge conflicts yep. for us. Like, we'll take it. Right. And I think that he he might know that. Yeah, so he's, he's like, of that. no, I'll just be a wise ass. And what are you going to do? <laughs> exactly. You need what are you going to do? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, but I mean, then look what he's written on his helmet. You know? Yeah, it's so bad. He's like rubbing it in their faces now. <laughs> I mean, doesn't Johan even say something to that effect in a couple of pages? Something about, like, you know, he's all we got or something right he yeah. does he does mention yeah. something like that yeah and then i think even eno says something about like well i'm just a smart ass like later on in the, in the sure year. but so yeah so he mentions the arrangement thing and all yeah that. i think this is so funny so in the last issue they were talking about you know we have unlimited ammo and all this kind of stuff now they're talking about they have to wait 30 days for ammo they're on horses instead of the fancy tactical vehicles that they had in the last issue why are we waiting 30 days for ammo play i don't know because maybe you're like wasting all of it right you fucking idiot and now they have to go hunt some monster even though Eno's saying that they could just bomb it if they wanted to and i'm glad you mentioned his helmet it says make it go boom on the side it made me think of born to kill mm. which would sometimes mm. be written on the side of military helmets in vietnam and then i even saw like some of them would scratch it out and put die yeah. born to die instead you know when the war started going south right and wasn't that also kind of like the cover of full metal jacket i think so yeah, yeah. Oscar points out like, hey, I remember this. We were already here. And so that's the car that you blew up. And <laughs> just in case we didn't yeah. get it. Yeah. Age well. <laughs> Back in the days before the current 30-day wait for ammunition. Ah, I got him. That's why you brought us back up here, Johan, just for that joke. That's a lot of miles for not much payoff. Hair chuckles. Like how he complains. He complains about stuff, but it's like you do it to yourself, my man. Right. (laughs) Everything he complains about is directly his fault. Johan says that they're to set up base camp there, and Enos and Howard's prepare to go on patrol through the mountains to look for the creature. And we see Howard's right up the back. Those are some really cool panels, too, of him all, yes. you know, in his, like, winter clothes. He's got, like, a nice sheath for his sword. I love how James Heron uses the shape of the panel as timing and mood yeah. setting. Is that mm-hmm. it's a it's a very wide, broad shot. And all that space really lets us know that it's empty and desolate. And he's by himself. And it's a long distance. It's a lot of time. We're in the mind of the character now. We're in the mindset of the character. So sure. he's so far behind them that he's. it takes a long time for us to, to get to him, yeah. first of all. And also, what is that character doing? He's utilizing that space and that quiet and that time right, for right. something. I like that. We don't know what it is. So there's a lot of attention paid to that. There's two whole panels of just him in the middle of a big, wide expanse. Right. So I like the, the way that he's used that space. We cut over to the Zinko lab. And we see this experiment, quote-unquote, going on. The scientists push an unwilling participant towards this monster that we saw them catch in the last issue in front of the Marsden statue. And so they're trying to bring this guy up, and he's, like, you know, resisting. This isn't human. This is sick. Please stop. 
And so while they're trying to do this, Evelyn comes up and she's like, what's going on here? And they're like, this research was commissioned by the Black Flame. You know, we've got to do it. We don't have any choice. We need the monster to bite this guy. And then so we hear, yeah. And then we see on this last panel, we can see that the monster like bit him, right? Well, if that's what Mr. Pope wants, Evelyn says. So she still refers to him as Pope, even though he's far but, removed yeah. from that. Yeah. Also, like how the uh, the the mutated monster is chained up in the same place the frog was chained up. Oh, you're right. Yeah. Evelyn walks over and inspects what the Zinko guy explains is the effects of the man that was the monster. And as she checks it out, these two guys whisper, "The flame requested this. When did you speak with him? Never." No one does, the scientist says, and neither will she. So she won't find out that I lied about wanting to torture this guy. Right. I don't think it's torture. It's more like experiment. The torture is kind of a secondary thing. <laughs> I mean, it definitely is torture. Like, I know that he understands Are you an evil that. scientist, yeah. Aubrey? <laughs> no. The Zinco Corporation does not attract good people. No. And so as Evelyn goes through this man's wallet, she finds a picture of a little girl riding a tricycle. Jill, three years, it says. And she looks at it. We cut to this action scene. Really amazing art by James Heron. We see this massive Ogdruhem. And we'll learn later that we're in Vogelgrad, Russia. And these jets bomb around it. It's really a spectacular image. We see Yosef down here with a damn minigun. <laughs> and we reveal Yosef and Agent Leonid. They're fighting off this horde of cricket monsters. And so we saw these evil crickets and hammerheads in Reign of the Black Flame. They're being overtaken. And Yosef says, They'll end up like Vornov over there if Leonid doesn't fire closer. And so I assume this is another agent because we see another military vehicle in the background being overtaken. And this is just amazing art as all these monsters are like just like overtaking and climbing all over everything. Leonid is hesitant to use a grenade launcher so close to their cargo. Follow orders, Leonid, Yosef commands. Only prepare yourself, Leonid says. And so he shoots a grenade launcher. There's this massive boom. And so he was effective in destroying all those creatures. Yosef calls Leonid a good soldier. And from inside the vehicle, we see their cargo that Leonid was so worried about shooting a grenade in front of. They have like a fucking nuke it's back a fucking there. Nuke, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so they use a drone to send it towards the Ogdruhem. I like the little device he hooks up to the steering wheel. Yeah, and, uh, it's really nice. And the pedal, it just, uh, yeah. We see Leonid and Yosef escape in their military vehicle away from it. Yosef tells Leonid, strong as you are, even you can't withstand and then we get this giant bahwoom. Right. <laughs> and we see the Ogdraham totally exploded. I really love the pacing of this. It's like it destroys the bottom half of it, but it's like top heavy. So then that top heavy part like crashes down. I like how you see the the head is on uh, the same plane as the top of the mushroom cloud. Right. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. that's a the great comparison. Is... Yeah. Leonid's like, victory at last. Is that what it is, Leonid? Yosef says, one creature down, and that's what you see. We do what we must, of course, but where is the victory? Jeez. And so we see behind him, there are all these crazy Ogdrahams. James Heron does an amazing job just showing the scale of these things. We get this enormous 
double splash page. And so this is how I knew we were in Vogelgrad, Russia, because we see these two statues here. So from Wikipedia, the Motherland Calls is a compositional center of the monument ensemble Heroes of the Battle of Stalingrad on Mamayev Kurgan in Vogelgrad, Russia. It was designed by sculptor Vucetich and structural designer Nikitin and declared the tallest statue in the world in 1967. At 85 meters, 279 feet, it is the tallest statue in Europe and the tallest statue excluding pedestals of a woman in the world. The Motherland Calls is highly complex from an engineering point of view due to its characteristic posture with the sword raised high in the right hand and the left hand extended in a calling gesture. The technology behind the hollow statue is based on a combination of concrete and wire rope. The sculpture is hollow. Inside the entire statue consists of separate cells or chambers like rooms in a building. The construction was started in 1959 and completed in 1967. And so here we see it. It's been destroyed. So the original sculpture as it is now has like a head and everything, right? right? Is that kind of like if, you know, like every film you see like disaster movie that sure. is involves the United States. I don't know how many destroyed statues of Liberty we've seen, but it's sure. a fucking lot. So it's that's kind, kind of, of like the, the same, same, yeah. same scale. Well, yeah. it's like that, except it's not a way overdone, overcooked trope. This is, this actually has impact. Oh yeah. Because it's like, Oh wow. That's a fucking, you know, like this still has, and it's a good way, like you said, to like give us a sense of scale, a sense of setting, you know, it's a very, so that's, it's effective and not, okay, this again. And part of this whole composition is a hall of military glory. And then there's a place outside of it called Grief Square. The central composition is Grieving Mother, a mother bending over the body of her killed son. A little pool at the bottom of the sculpture symbolizes tears of all the mothers who weep for their lost sons. And so that's this other statue that we see on the left over here. Oh, damn. This is the exact same attitude that Yosef had in Manhattan when he was like, really, are we going to celebrate this? Yeah. It's right. not really total victory. He's sure. out for total victory. Back with the BPRD, we see that they've set up base camp in this house, and Tion is uncomfortable staying in someone's house, even though they're not coming back. He says he's surprised that Johan sent Enos out on the first patrol, since they don't seem to agree much. That doesn't make him a bad leader, Johan says. It only means I have difficulty leading him. So you think he's a good leader, Tion asks? Sooner or later, Tion, we're all going to have to be good leaders. And so I think that's what you were talking about, yeah. right? They yeah. take who they can get. Right. I also love that management practice of <laughs> if somebody's insubordinate, you question yourself as a manager, not them as incapable of being managed. Right. As a manager, I always thought that. And then I would see other managers who didn't practice that. Right. And I'm like, wow, you're not going to be a manager for long. Well, and then so also he's sending him out to lead this thing to maybe be like, maybe he'll rise to the occasion. Right. Probably, right? right? Yeah. Like, And I like this little story detail. This one agent, she gets like this blanket and she stuffs it in this hole in the window to oh, yeah. you know to block the block the air from escaping i thought that was just a nice little story yeah. beat that we see play out through those panels yeah over with enos he's got his team now i'm not sure who all these agents are but as they talk enos mentions that his scout agent howards refuses to actually scout <laughs> he prefers to hang back 10 minutes behind them 
Enos thought Howard's would make them safer. Big laugh. Me being a commander, he says. But this other agent that's with him, she says Howard's doesn't recognize any superiors, not even Johan. He does what he wants, but the rest of us will follow you anywhere. That's nice. I don't know. It's it's it's, it's yet <laughs> yeah. another example of how short-sighted this character is. Yeah. He's like, oh, I, I thought bringing him would be good, but do you think he doesn't have a fucking reason are you not like, what's wrong? Well, and I think she's trying to talk him up too. And he's just like, I think he's kind of oblivious to that. Like they, his team does believe in him, but he's kind of not. I even, don't know if he's oblivious you know. to that. I just think that he he's too short-sighted to really recognize like, he's so impatient and so short-sighted that it's just so frustrating. But I get it. Like we need that character as a juxtaposition to Ted Howard's. We need right, that character right. there to kind of show us there is a method to the madness. There is a rhyme and reason to what, how how Ted Howard's operates, and it's he's patient. He's like right. being still and calm and observing, and he doesn't. He has no wasted actions or movements or decisions. He's he's waiting it out, and he only acts if he has to. And the fucking polar opposite of that is this goddamn <laughs> this guy. He's like, oh, I thought this would be good, but it turns out it's just bad. It's like you haven't even done anything or gone anywhere yet. Why don't you just fucking relax, like? He wants there to be conflict. He wants there to be all this shit happening. And so right. he gets his fucking wish. A bunch, <laughs> a bunch of shit fucking happens, which forces Ted Howard's into action. And it's like, is that everything you wanted, buddy? Right. You know? Well, he just seems like the kind of character that just always likes to bitch no matter what the situation is. Beyond the fourth wall, I'm trying to find like a narrative reason for that. And I think the only thing I can really identify is it's to really just ju- be the juxtaposition sure. to Ted Howard's and like really that. show like this character's journey isn't for no fucking reason. It happened for a fucking reason. And so this guy's going to go on his own little fucking journey here in a minute. As they're on patrol here, they come across this massive monster sleeping in the snow. I really love the storytelling here. We kind of see around it, there's like a graveyard of all these bones. Yeah, this is your first clue. This should be evidence. Like, do not, what is, no, (laughs) just leave it alone. Let sleeping monsters lie. And so, you know, the agents are all pretty sure that this is what they're looking for, but Enos thinks it's already dead. It has no heat signature at all, he says. But they're still going to call it in. Half a ton of napalm will heat his ass up, Enos says. So over kind of the hubris, the hubris, like this never goes well. Like, how do you not understand this? And so he calls out to Agent Howards, forget it, Howard, stay where you are. And then he mutters to himself, hell, go all the way back to HQ while you're at it. We cut to night. And all the agents are sitting around a fire. They're waiting on the airstrike all this time. And they mention Howard's is out on a nature walk. Hey, look. And so they see the bomber approaching and drop its payload. There's a huge explosion. And so afterwards, one of the agents is like, it's just charcoal now. And the leader of the fucking mission says, I'm not waiting for this other guy that's in my unit. Who's going to lead his horse? Right. <laughs> uh, so you're going to abandon one of the... How does that work? Right. I'm, I would think in this case, Howard's went off on his own. I'm sure he didn't get permission. Fuck him. Right. No. He just does it's, what like, he wants, yeah. it's like, hey, man, you left us. And, and it's probably not the first time, right? Well, but it's like know. he abandoned his post. He, they could say he's AWOL. I mean, you a nature a walk. Point. I'm sure. I'm sure Howard didn't say, oh, "I'm going to go on a nature walk." Right. Right. <laughs> I think that's just their way of saying he's off on his own again. Yeah. But to your point, I, I would say, can somebody call for him or yeah, maybe like what? Give him five minutes. The explosion. Obviously, he'll hear that. Right. Come back. 
Yeah. We reveal this crazy monster. I mean, this design work is amazing on this kind of like insect creature. But then it's got all these like tentacle things in the back. And just the face and the mouth of this thing is incredible. It's pretty wild. And it just comes up. It's all a flame from the napalm. As he shoots at it, Tion says, the napalm just woke him up. And this panel with him running full fucking speed is so terrifying. Yeah. Because it's a it's so clever to get all the legs in the air at one time. Right. Because that lets you know how fucking fast it's going. If you've ever seen like a still frame of, I don't know, a horse running or something, a cheetah running or something like that, there's one point where all the legs leave the ground. Right, yeah. yeah. And it's that speed, man. And so then... Obviously, the the speed lines are are letting us know that, and the the sense of perspective and all this stuff, and this horse going wild trying to get free from this thing. It's just it's really fucking. Oh yeah, and it crunches the horse. You see on the bottom panel, it's running so that quickly horrible, that it really kind of, bad. It kind of gives us a sense of how much distance it's covering in a second. It's just awful. This one agent, she was earlier saying that she believes in Enos, you know, that they'd follow him anywhere. She's reaching out for him. She's like, Enos, I got you. She gets killed because he's a fucking... Right, as she reaches out, piece of shit. we see that that horse gets crunched and toppled over. And so Enos is like, I'll never make it, but maybe. And so he just starts running. And I love these little huff circles yeah. that James yeah. Heron does. It doesn't Enos have enough room within the circle right and that that really lends itself it makes you feel like you don't have enough i love that breath like you don't have enough room in your lungs to take a deep enough breath to run that fast it's really effective it's really good (laughs) and just the pacing of this is so amazing we see enos is running off the monster is closely on his heels crash on this bottom panel and we cut to issue three. Oh, real quick in the letter column for that last issue i mentioned bprd number 124 which was the grind okay and scott says 124 was one of the best reviewed bprd issues ever oh yeah i totally believe a lot of high praise for that one yeah Yeah. i thought that it won an award for best single issue but i couldn't find it anywhere oh maybe it was nominated or something like that but i thought i remember that at the time it won like an award for best single issue but maybe i'm just making that up in my head i gave it best single issue in in my head for sure (laughs) nice on chapter three, we open up on Johan and Tian. It's daytime, and it seems like Tian's been looking for food in this general store that's behind them all, dilapidated. All he found were crackers. He tells Johan that they need to send a search party to look for Enos's team. But Johan says it's only the third day of their three-day mission. They're not technically missing yet. He does recognize that he's concerned at the lack of radio contact. Wait, Tion says. He's like, Jesus. And then so we see these two horses ride up. On one of them is Howard's, and he's completely covered in like black soot or something. He's yeah. completely painted black. Yeah, and he looks like awesome but terrible at the same time. Yes. And then next to him is Enos on another horse. And it's just the two of them. But you notice how Howard has Enos's reins in his hand. Oh, right, exactly. You know, we get like two full pages as they're just riding up and the team are looking at them. Howard's and Enos approach Johan, and Enos says, Agent Enos reporting for Diddley Squat. <laughs> <laughs> 
Johan's like, does that mean that the others think I'd leave anyone behind who was still alive, Enos asks? Why do you always ask stupid questions first, Johan? Which is kind of uh, weird because he was going to leave Howard's behind. You're exactly right. Yeah, Yeah, he was going to do that. Johan's like, maybe I can get more answers from you, Agent Howard's. But Howard just rides off away from them. Of course. Typical fashion. Everyone's super quiet and silent. And he just goes off on his own. And no one can talk to him or reach him. And he's just like, whatever, goes off by himself. But then this guy... Oh, he needs everyone's attention all around him. Oh, can somebody get a drink for me? Oh, everyone, give me attention. Like, oh my God. Right. Fucking kidding me. So just even further spells the difference between these two characters. I love that. Yeah. Thank you for pointing that out. So pathetic. We cut to the next scene and they have Enos inside and he's like, you know, when I said drink, I don't mean freaking chamomile. (laughs) (laughs) I wouldn't mind some chamomile right now. Yeah, it's pretty good. So Johan sits down and he's like, all right, you're comfortable. The medic says you don't have a concussion, but I still don't have answers. And so Enos tells his story. And so we pick up on the end of the last issue where that monster was close on his heels and he was running away. We get those little huff circles again, which I like. And then that crash was actually Howard's pushing Enos out of the way. So he jumped in and saved him at the last minute. Howard takes Enos on his back. We see that after Howard rescued him, you know, they have him at camp. And Enos is trying to talk to Howard. He's like, you need to go out on your own. Maybe find a horse, whatever. Just get back to camp. I'll be okay here. But Howard's like, he's just not responsive at all. We see in the morning that Howard's he makes a rabbit for breakfast for Enos. And then he's doing something with the hide over here. In the morning, Howard's and Enos went off. And they found the remains of the horses and of the men. And so Howard leans down and he like touches the ashes or all the soot where they were kind of like all burned by that monster. It was on fire. So everything that it was touching like was lighting on fire too. He didn't give you any indication why he did it, Johan asks. Why he stripped himself and painted himself that way? Oh sure, Eno says. Because Howard's he can't shut up. Really loves to share. <laughs> One thing I can tell you, quite as he was before we found that mess, afterwards, he was pissed off. I knew better than to joke with him, Eno says. Better to even say a word. More than that, he seemed to be thinking about something, like he had a plan. Though I doubt Christ himself could tell you what it was. Like we saw when they rode in, Howard paints himself all black with the soot from that dead horse and agent, and then he rides off into the snow. And we get some amazing picturesque scenes by James Heron yeah. with Howards, just in the whole in all black. It yeah, just looks really cool, it's amazing. right? And again, the sense of scale and the placement and the, the the composition of the panels really gives you the sense of time and space. And you can hear the the sun, maybe the wind, and maybe the crunching footsteps through the snow, and right. maybe not much else. And it's just like it really gives you that. Sense. And even in the panels where he's going through the house, there's no dialogue or anything, but you can see like he's he's small here in the doorway and then there's the rest of the house here and it's just very he's gone for a long way yeah but very purposeful yes right yeah so check this out there's another parallel here this first shot this big giant shot with the mountains in the background Mm -hmm. is the exact same location from panel one of the first issue oh where we saw the mammoth and all that yeah oh i love that thank you so he's he's home yeah. yeah. He, he must have known that. 
I think that would probably have a lot to do with why he's so quiet. Yeah. Yeah. And then when it's it just he's in his head, you know. Yeah, absolutely. And when it flashes back to where he's painted with the red paint, it kind of almost mirrors that panel of him walking through the snow. Right. It's warm tones. It's on a side of the mountain, but it's kind of flipped, like mirrored. No, yeah, you're absolutely right. Well, but right before it flashes back, oh, when sorry, he goes yeah. in, when he goes into that house, he sees like this drawing. It kind of looks like a kid's drawing. Right. It does. And yeah. there's like this buffalo that's smiling. And so we see him put his hand on it. Right. It kind of reminded me of like, do you remember in the very beginning when he's getting painted up? You see cave paintings behind him. Right, exactly. Yeah, there were so cave paintings. It's, yeah. like, it's like, this reminds me of kind of like the cave paintings. Sure. Mm-hmm. It's like a nice, you know, memory trigger transition. Yeah. And so, and so we do cut back to the Galdenar world. Galdenar and Ando hunt for the creature and Ando says he smells death. Gal says it's not death. Something else. Follows rot and it gets inside my eyes. I thought that was a good descriptor yeah. right there. Yeah. And I like when this guy says, I feel unwell and the land is unwell around me. Oh, yeah. It's yeah. like super fucking accurate, first of all, but it's just a really intriguing way to say that. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> yeah. And Ando also says that he wishes they had those marked stones. Oh, right. And we see them again in that panel. But Gaul says, Security is always a lie. Better to be afraid. Better to be alert. I also like how he says, like, you know, you know, he's like, I wish we had those stones. It's like, but we don't. We don't have them. So don't right. dwell, don't exactly. dwell on yeah. them. Yeah. Sure. We see this one guy, Yazis, run up with a wolf. Is that the smell, Gaul asks? More than a smell, Gaul Denar. Much more and much worse, Yazis says. And so I guess the dog is tracking he's something. figured out what's going on, yeah. And so we see this scene with all these animals and creatures and they've all been taken over by this fungus stuff well he says it's like a fungus but it's not natural right so it's not a fungus it's some other worldly a disease from the abyss sure wow it it's a horrible looking scene awful it's so awful it really reminds me of that uh that movie Annihilation. Yes, thank yeah, you. Yeah. I think we'll talk about this more when we get to the sketchbook, but there's like a type of fungus that grows on bugs mm-hmm. where it creates oh. these long fungus yeah. things. But they do Seriously? talk about that they got inspiration from that to yeah. create these grotesque forms all over the animals. And then so Galdenar is like, and that one? And so he gestures over, and there's like a guy back there. Yeah, and he's got like a wooden creepy. mask, and it's got like a skull on it. Is he alive or is he dead? A spirit father from another tribe, Ando asks. No, he has no tribe. Not in this world. A demon. The shepherd of this plague flock. The emissary of the damned. The sower of darkness. And so we see this. We see this evil looking guy. And he like gestures with his cane. And then we see this giant monster like come forth. And so this monster, it has those same kind of growth coming out of his eyeballs. Don't like that. Yeah. It's almost like it's like a mutated buffalo. Right, right. It does look like that. Yeah, I had a notion about this guy when I first read this, that he was a prehistoric black flame. I was going to say that. Oh, my God. Yeah, I love that. So I brought this up recently with Nathaniel Green, book club member. Yeah. (laughs) And he disputed that and made some good points about no nah, he he had some other ideas and i was like all right i'm going to the source <laughs> so I, I asked scott alley and he said he is not a black flame 
Right oh, on, right on. Okay, okay. But Good that deal. is an interesting parallel that you're drawing. I do like that. Though, because yeah. we do see the black flame, you know, earlier in the story so it's you know if it's not yeah. a proxy then it is a good parallel story-wise so i mean yeah i thought it was like a blandis pope kind of sure. uniform or exactly, or, or, exactly. Yeah. diy black flame <laughs> right <laughs> and so it summons forth this crazy monster and it seems like it's been overtaken by a lot of this fungus stuff too and so galdenar and his tribe they have to attack it and so we see a bunch of them are getting totally killed and ravaged by this monster James Heron is just killing it on this art. It's just amazing. This goes on for a couple pages. They really give him some room to breathe with all of this uh, destruction. Think of all the different stuff he's had to draw. Oh, yeah. Like, <laughs> right? Just like, in this um, one story alone, in this yeah. one storyline. Tanks, monsters, wilderness, cities. They're really giving him a workout. I mean, he can do it all. Yeah, wow. yeah, he can do it all. And so... Ando's like, you know, how are we going to stop this thing? And Galdenar, he remembers this. So remember, in Abyss of Time, the same thing happened. They had to kill the little shaman guy before the monster oh, would die. Yeah. And so I think that Galdenar is remembering that here. And he's like, you need to target the man, not the beast. And Ando's like, I don't have my spear. You will, Galdenar says. Nice. And so we see him run up to the monster and jump in the air. He looks just like Howard's in this panel as he's flying through the air. He lands on top of the creature and he like sticks his sword in there and then he throws a spear. Like as he throws it, it says toss. Yeah, that's <laughs> and he gets thrown from the back. And when he lands, he's like, now Ando. So then we get some great panels like the creature is coming right down on Galdenar. It's going to chomp on him. Ando's throwing the spear and then it goes right through that little shaman guy with the skull mask. The sense of anatomy. The sense of motion. Yeah. The, I mean, the action there here is... There is so much. Really, really epic. And so it totally works, right? They kill the evil shaman guy, and then the monster falls. And they're like, where's Galdenar? Because it was coming right on him as it died. And then, of course, in classic comic book fashion... Galdenar cuts himself <laughs> out of the inside oh, of the monster. Jeez. We see him emerging from all the guts and everything with his epic sword. Really cool, really cool stuff. I really enjoy this. And that I love that, that transitions into him coming up out of the water. Right. It's... So we get back to the present time and Howard's emerges from this frozen lake. It looks like he's washing himself or maybe washing that black stuff. And then really interesting. So he has this one panel where he's like, hmm. And there's like a question mark. And then he reaches down and he pulls out those mark stones. Jeez. So from when those kids were skipping them, that's where they stayed. And so he's able to now connect to that. So amazing, right? Oh, I okay, love that's how the this end is of the end. issue. I turned. I was so like, cool. why is this? When he when he pulled out the stone, I was just like, that is fucking amazing. Yeah. So maybe the kid in his absent-mindedness, maybe something spirit-wise was saying, no, he's going to need those thousands of years later. Sure. You know, but wow. subconsciously. Right. Right. I love that. Chapter four, we open on Enos, Johan, and a whole regiment of agents, and Enos thinks this is stupid. Do you know how stupid this is? Really, really freaking stupid. Can someone tell him to shut the <laughs> fuck up? If we decided to abandon every mission based upon likelihood of success, we'd have lost the war a long time ago, Agent Enos, Johan says. I will point out that Johan does seem to have a level of patience with Enos that... Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 
I just yeah. cannot. Im- I can't believe he has like that patience. Des- describing the basic function of an army to a soldier. Yeah. Right. Why would you bother? Eno says Napalm didn't do anything. It helped, in fact. Johan says that they can still try to blast it to pieces. They've got more ammunition now, and they're better prepared. They have a C-130 with a bunker buster standing by. And so he's referring to a Lockheed C-130 Hercules. This is a four-engine turboprop military transport aircraft. It was originally designed as a troop, medevac, and cargo transport aircraft. And a bunker buster is a type of munition that is designed to penetrate hardened targets or targets buried deep underground, such as military bunkers. They have to hunt for the monster again because the Air Force can't locate it since it doesn't have a heat signature. Eno says, It's not natural. You of all people should understand that the things we're facing, they aren't just biological or physical. They don't come from our world, do they? And they bring, I don't know, magic. Whatever it is, they bring it with them, this Eno panel says. Is fucking incredible. Yeah, and the work that James Heron is doing here behind Enos, we see... Some very the, good psychedelic you know, shit. What he's thinking of as magic, I guess, right? And Nichols is like, damn, Enos, i never seen you scared before. Didn't think it was possible. I'm not scared, Nichols. Scared's got nothing to do with it, Enos says. But you gotta know that we can't stop everything with bullets or fire or even a bomb. We just can't. Oh, we can't. We can't do it. Oh, shut up. And Nichols says... Okay, so how about we start praying to it? And then there's this one silent panel with Enos. And so that made me think of, remember in Rain in the Black Flame, he draws the Abe symbol on the wall. Yeah, so I thought that was interesting. And then Enos is like, look, a minute back you said we would have lost this war a long time ago if we just gave in to the odds. But what if we're losing anyway? And what if we're losing because we're fighting? And so Johan's like, what exactly are you trying to say? But then suddenly they lose the pack mule and then they hear this crazy sound. We see this incredible bug monster thing coming out again. I just love the way James Heron draws this thing with like these crazy teeth coming out and all these sounds coming out of it. It's just really an impressive design. Those of the teeth kind of look like arms with fingers on them. Oh, they do. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. I have to say, I actually like the little silhouette of the uh, the mule or the donkey that's running away. Right. I, I don't know why. I, I don't know. I was just like, yeah, donkey, get the fuck out of there. <laughs> <laughs> we cut to Yosef. He's in this very depressing meeting. They watch St. Petersburg being overtaken by an, oh, uh, an enormous Ogdurham. And the other two officials urge Yosef to tell the president to pull out the army and defend the cities that can be saved. But he just walks out of the room. And we see him go to his office to Vivara. The news is not good, eh, Yosef, she asks. She knows Mother Russia is in trouble. This is the end, or it might be, she says. I feel for her. I feel for the people and for the motherland. He reaches into this file cabinet amongst all these files (laughs) under V for Vodka. Yeah. (laughs) Takes out a bottle of vodka. And he slams it on the table, and he's like, shut your goddamn mouth about the motherland, you rat-hearted cancer. Jeez, all right. He tells her that she's from hell, not from Russia. But she says she's been in Russia longer than he's been alive. Longer even than you have been dead, she says. Vavara says she can do more than he thinks. There's no hierarchy in hell, no rules. Think of what she could bring against Yosef's enemies. And so this art is amazing, right? We kind of like see James Heron do his version of hell. And we see the demon that Vavara 
came from or her original form of that sitting atop this throne of skulls with all these little demons around it. And I really like how James Heron does that little Mignola demon guy too. Yeah. So I exchanged this world, this hellish existence for the kingdom of hell itself. With you as queen, this is your offer, Yosef asks. Favara says, she likes humans. Alive, they are so funny. Dead, so dreary, so serious. I want no more of hell, of lost souls mourning themselves. And Yosef says that she thinks she's so powerful, all the while stuck in a jar like a heap of pickle salad. Pickle salad. And Yosef is probably referring to Olivier salad. This is a traditional salad dish in Russian cuisine, which is also popular in other post-Soviet countries, many European countries, and also throughout Latin America. There's different modern recipes. It is usually made with potatoes, carrots, dill pickles, peas, eggs, onions, and boiled chicken, or sometimes ham, and tart apples, salt, pepper, and mustard to enhance flavor, dressed with mayonnaise. So... It's potato salad? Sure. That's how, I mean, I put pickles in potato salad. The original version of the salad was invented in the 1860s by a cook of Belgian origin, Lucien Olivier. The exact recipe, particularly that of the dressing, was a zealously guarded secret, Mm. but it is known that the salad contained grouse, veal, caviar, lettuce, Mm. crawfish, capers, and smoked duck. It's a bit much. Yeah. <laughs> there are a variety of other pickle pasta salad recipes on the mm. internet. I also found an apple and pickle salad that was referenced in 1905, Los Angeles Times cookbook number two. Pickle mm, salad. Pickle yeah. salad. I think we need to get some you of that. You think we need to make some pickle salad? <laughs> Minus the caviar, though. And yeah, the, and no, the not all that <laughs> stuff. Yeah. No, just like it's, I, th- I feel like it's basically southern potato salad just with like more pickles in it. Right. I don't know. And peas and. Well, no, it's like. And- but yeah, the, all these, I've, I've heard of all these ingredients at one point going into someone's recipe or another, but never all at once. So, like, I know that some people, like, some people make potato salad. With eggs, without eggs, I you know. Oh, back to Yosef and Bavar. Yeah. <laughs> I had to go on a pickle salad tangent. Yosef mocks Favara for being held by a faint radio broadcast of a chant recorded by a woman in her grave 40 years now. How mighty you are, he says sarcastically. He tells Vavara that she won't be royalty in the new hell. You will melt away in an instant, little snowball, he says. I release you. There is only one thing I can trust you to do. Only one child of God for whom all this suffering will end. And then we get this one like, did you yeah, think he was doing it? Yeah, it's kind of like a little right vignette. Here? I yeah. seriously thought he was. Yeah. Well, it's very the- cinematic because there are a lot of moments in some certain movies where that'll happen. It'll be, they'll play out some scene and it's like, oh, someone imagining it or something, right. you know, and yeah. it's very, I love that. It's very illustrative of what he's, what he's talking about. Anyway. Yeah. I really like that a lot. Yeah, and so we do get a vision of him taking the top off of Avara, and then we just see this huge burst of light, and he's being totally destroyed, and it makes the silhouette of that demon that she becomes, and which that I panel think is, is so amazing. cool. Yeah, I mean, just the attention to detail and the the movement of it is just like it's really incredible. But it didn't really happen. Yosef holds the bottle of vodka. Lord Jesus, if I could just have a drink, he says. 
He can't uh, he... put it in his juice. I know, right? <laughs> he needs to find sanctuary that doesn't have Vavara in the same right. room. Right. Exactly. I, I don't understand yeah. why. Of course, she's just going to hassle him when he's right. trying to, like, you know, yeah. keep Playing together games emotionally. Right. Yeah. But maybe he doesn't trust anyone else to, like, guard sure. her. That's a good point. Yeah, but if he's looking for like a peace and quiet, he can go stay in another room for a few minutes. Right, right. right. Sure. Back in New York, James Heron gives us this awful monster. That's that same monster that they've been experimenting with, and it's making this ch 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 sound over and over again. Evelyn talks to the technician that's monitoring it. She's got to check out all the motion-activated footage of the monster. And Evelyn asks about that sound it's making. What is it about that noise that's so familiar, she asks. She asked for a copy of the recording. And so we cut to her drinking wine in her big office. Now she's got the window office, oh, I guess, yeah. since Marsden isn't there. And she's got the wallet of the guy that the monster was. She thinks the sound that the creature is making is so human. He was human once, she says to herself. And she decides to slow down the video. Her eyes widen. It reveals that it's saying Jill over and over. The name of the little girl in that picture. So terrible. And it's like very how, chilling. Yeah. I like the way that they also kind of it's like you know she like it's like chi 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 shill 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 yeah right that's kind of neat the yeah transition of fucking it fucking creepy right it really is and it kind of re- harkens back to thinking about Daryl the Wendigo right he was that's like what this I was monster. gonna say yeah. yeah and he's still kind of um he's still he's had, in there somewhere yeah we cut over to Howard's. He's still at the house that he went to, and now he's got those stones from the lake, those mark stones. And so we see with the black soot that was all over his body, he's drawn that monster they're hunting. And it's in a very cave art style, similar to art shown in numerous paintings and engravings found in European caves and shelters dating back to the Ice Age. And he stands in front of this painting, and he closes his eyes. Do you feel like it's like that's he's he's planning out the battle like you know he's he's drawing out his plays exactly yeah and it's also like a I was here this is what happened thing oh right you know, right yeah which is, and it's it, it was important for well I don't get into the whole anthropological thing but like like you said that that was we saw something similar when right, he right, was yeah. in his village with his shaman guy and all that back with Enos and the team they're shooting at the monster. Enos is with the grenade launcher, but it isn't really doing anything. Enos says the trees were more effective in slowing it down. He runs back to his horse, and Johan calls for the pack mule. And I think this panel is so funny as they're trying to catch the pack mule, right? But it's got all the ammo and everything on it. They're like, there, write him down. Poor thing. It's very suspenseful, but it's also funny. Johan says... If they keep riding up the mountain, they will eventually run out of places to go. And he pulls out the smoke grenades, I guess to signal the Air Force bomb, those bunker busters they mentioned earlier. But we need to live long enough to make the radio call, he says. And then so, I love the color work too, as we see all the smoke kind of coming up. But I like this because... Johan is always trying to look for why Enos is useful. So he's like, oh, like you said, the trees slowed it down. So let's go down towards the tree line. You know what I mean? He says that they have a better chance that way. And maybe they'll get lost in the smoke. Anyway, that's all we have to go on, Johan says. And so shortly thereafter, the monster crushes the pack mule with its Ooh, giant insect legs. I felt so bad for that that's little guy. That's really terrible. Then we haven't got much, Enos says. 
I, I'm the kind of sensitive fucking asshole that's like, you know, I understand it's a movie about war. You kill all the people you want, but when, as soon as the dog gets killed or the donkey or the ch- chicken right. or whatever, the cat, you know, as soon as the fucking yeah. pet gets killed, I'm like, <laughs> you fucking maniacs, you fucking monsters, how could you? It's very... And, and I know. something I will never be that desensitized so to. That so cute too. I will never be desensitized to that. And I feel like you know they hadn't stopped it. Maybe the thing could have made it to the uh, tree. Like, cause that thing was booking, and it was like did, you could see the terminal look on its poor face. I know, poor guy, poor and, girl. And so we get some uh, some incredible action here. This monster kind of roaring up on top of all the smoke is just really great and terrifying. And like I said, scrambling yeah. towards the agents on their horses. And so we see the, like it's like closely approaching them, smashing other horses and other agents behind them. And they're just riding off and it's just getting closer and closer and closer as we go through these panels. And then on this last page... We see Howard's riding yeah. up on his horse, screaming and holding up his sword. All right. Hell yeah. And he's all painted. Yeah. Yes. So epic. Chapter five. That's what we call the good shit. Yeah. Just like in Rain in the Black Flame, Johan and the agents are puzzled as they run away from the action and Howard's is running towards the action in the opposite direction. And so as Howards is approaching this scrambling, horrific monster, he stands up on his horse, and then he jumps through the air, his sword in one hand and this pouch in the other. It's that uh, pouch he made earlier from the rabbit skin. Oh, you're right. That's what he was making. We gotta stop him, Enos says. He's gonna get himself killed. And so I don't think Enos was there when Howards went off in Rain in the Black Flame. Remember, he had to watch Leonid? Yeah. So I don't think he saw... You know, how Howard's, like, took on all those guys. And so he's all freaking out, but Johan's like, leave him be. Johan takes off on his horse. He's like, I'll go. And then so this is so awesome, right? this action of him tossing the stones out and them tumbling out of the thing. And then, I mean, every detail is perfect. There's not a wasted bit of space here on this whole page. And so... I just love how he illustrates the stones rolling and tumbling out. Then he's sliding on the ground saying these words over them. And it's very so, but the pacing is so fast. And yeah, it's just it happens really so good. quickly. Yeah. And so like Danielle says, he throws out the rocks. He's saying some sort of Hyperborean chant or something. He raises the sword into the air and then he cracks all the stones in one blow. And it sends out this huge shock wave that is like, calling down lightning and vril i guess this is all vril power and it's sending this huge burst of energy all around howards and the creature and so as this huge blast is going all the agents are like shielding their eyes and enos is just looking on and howards he turns around and he looks at enos and he yells at him enos fire fire your grenades and it's the first time that we've seen him yell or say anything i think right I feel like it has. I mean, okay, so up until this point, I was thinking, maybe he just doesn't speak English anymore. Right. (laughs) And so Enos is like, Jesus Christ, he can talk. Fire in the hole. He has to say that little thing. Well, you have to say that, right? You have to say that so that you can let everyone know around you what's happening so they don't accidentally get hit by it. But yeah, he's very excited to be doing this. (laughs) And so he shoots the grenade launcher and it totally blows up this monster. And I just love this, under this grotesque explosion, Howard's the silhouette of him and Johan, and you can just see the little eyes and stuff like that. That is so cool. That's such an epic panel. He's like finally wearing his goggles. Oh, right. Yeah. He's always got them up on his forehead. 
And so afterwards, we see the monster is totally destroyed. Just a huge pool of, like, guts and just all this gross stuff. Enos is like, Jesus, after all, that's it? Looks like you were right, Enos, Nichols says. It was all magic, like a force field, right? And looks like we got our very own wizard man now, don't it? Guess so, Enos says, and he's, like, smiling. And so Johan says, they're still going to call the Air Force. (laughs) They've got the bomb waiting. They're not taking any chances. Uh, you know, I have to agree with him a little bit there, you know. Yeah. <laughs> we cut to Moscow. And so Yosef is asleep at his desk with a bottle of vodka in his hand. Favara sleeps in her jar. And she dreams of bats. Not bats. As we transition, we see there are these little winged demons. Favara's dreaming of hell. And she appears there. So remember in Cold Day in Hell, while the radio tower was temporarily down, she contacted those demons in Hell and was talking to them. And they told her that the kingdom of Hell had been overtaken and all this kind of stuff. I think it's interesting that it's not her full demon form. It's the Vavara form with the demon wings. Oh, yeah. That's a good point. It's really interesting. But I think like through that, she was able to make a little bit of a get a little bit of a power, a little bit of a way through yeah. while that tower was down. And yeah, now she's yeah. got a line into hell. I think that's why she's more chipper, too. Mm-hmm. Oh, For exactly. Sure. And talkative. And-, and so she's talking to all the demons and she's like, yes, go forth, saviors of man. Bless this world with the sacrament of your spilled blood. What do we have now? There is problem. And so she's got this puppet of Yosef. Little Yosef. Where is that smile I knew of yours in the old times? That laughter that made me so happy. And so she walks along. She's got her little demon wings. And just the way that James Heron draws her, you almost get the sense that she's like jauntily walking. You know what I mean? The way that she's stepping. But we go to watch the battle. You will see our mother Russia reclaimed. That will brighten your eyes. And then if you are good, if you sing with me, then maybe we will visit your wife's grave. You will like that, no? And so she's got him on the puppet string. So, you know, he's in that office with her all the time, just like you kind of alluded to, Matt. She's got her own plans for Yosef. And as she walks off, she sings that song, Coro Baniki, The Peddlers, also known as the Tetris song that we talked about when her first appearance. We cut over to the Zinko lab, and we're watching that grotesque monster again. It's eating like some dead thing, and Evelyn is there. She comes over to talk to the technician, and she's asking for Hirsch again. That's like, I guess, the main guy. And she's like, can't you at least feed him cooked meat? And they're like, we tried. He won't eat it. Because now she knows that he's a man, right? So she's starting to like, I guess she feels sympathy for it. Dr. Hirsch, the lab guy, comes over and he's like, oh, Evelyn, what a delight. I wish I knew you were coming. There's a lot of data I'd like to share. And she's like, I can't stay long. There's just something I need you to see. And she pulls out a gun and she just shoots that monster. And they're like, what have you done? And she points the gun at Hirsch. If you ever use another one of those poor creatures for research, I'll have you shot. And they're like, but the black, don't say it, Hirsch. Don't say his name, she says, or I'll pull this trigger right now. So she's not as willing to do all of the Black Flame's bidding, right? Or maybe she's like on to him, like, you know, that this guy's full of shit in the Black Flame. Oh, right, exactly. Yeah, she's on to him. We cut to Grand Central Terminal. 
This is a commuter rail terminal located at 42nd Street and Park Avenue in Midtown Manhattan, New York City, which was opened in 1913. The terminal is the third busiest train station in North America. And this Glory of Commerce cultural group rests atop the terminal facade directly above a broken pediment featuring a large clock. The work is also known as Progress with Mental and Physical Force of Transportation. At its unveiling in 1914, the work was considered the largest sculptural group in the world. It features representations of Minerva, Hercules, and Mercury. The sculptures were designed by French sculptor Cotin and carved by John Donnelly Company. And so I guess now the Black Flame has taken up Grand Central Terminal as his hideout now. And we get some amazing art by James Heron as we kind of go down into the terminal to where he's hanging out. And so he's like, as he's in there, he's like, my dream was too small. I didn't grasp who I was, what I am, all I could do. That was my sin. My empire does not flourish in the shadows. Can I say, I, this whole thing I imagine, do you remember the Orson Welles Unicron voice? Oh, yeah, this yeah. Is- yeah. <laughs> Not even the shadow of the dragon, whose number is seven, the seven that are one. And this work with the black flame is just really, really amazing and terrifying at the same time. And he says, the one that is me. And we focus in on his eye and there's like the cosmos in there and stuff. And as we focus in further, we see the Ogdra Jihad, the seven, the seven that are mine. And then one of them starts to like crack. Oh, man. This panel in the corner, too, where we can kind of see the translucency and we can see the thing inside well, the shell. All the shell. stuff that's cracking off of it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's fucking creepy because, like, I mean, when did we see the first crack? Was it in Sea Destruction or Wake the Devil? Rasputin did it. Yeah. I think it was in Wake the Devil. Do you remember, Matt? No. Oh. <laughs> I just remember it's like we've had that first crack and that crack was years Long time ago. ago. Yeah. We cut to the BPRD headquarters in Colorado, and we have another scene with Liz and Phoenix. It's awesome. (laughs) Okay, so this panel with the mint in it, you can immediately tell it's mint. Oh, okay. That's Immediately, as soon as you look at it, you're like, oh, that's mint, right? And then she says, oh, I've I've been growing basil, and I'm just like, um. (laughs) But then, of course, we get the explanation for why she said that. But anyway, I just, yeah. This whole scene is so fucking awesome and funny. And like I said, I've been really wanting a reason to like right. Phoenix and to like her relationship with Liz. And so I can come back and reread this and really thoroughly, truly enjoy this now because, <laughs> you know, it finally, someone finally managed to get through my head like all of this right. stuff yeah. with her and Abe and all this stuff. So yeah, I really appreciate that. But I do love this characterization of Phoenix yeah. when she's like leaning, leaning in the doorway. The, yeah. Like kids do stuff like yeah. that. You know what I mean? She's like, hey, where's the lady with the green thumb? <laughs> Ponya said you started a window box. Let I check in. Make sure you don't hurt yourself. (laughs) And Liz is like, got a little basil growing. Gets warmer, I'll transfer it to my garden outside. Liz, this is mint. Smell it. Put that in your garden. It'll take over the whole plot. You're just about helpless, aren't you, Phoenix says. Don't worry. Phoenix got your ass covered. Already got us a share in the community compost heap, so we'll have some decent fertilizer in April. I'll have you growing basil and tomatoes by June if it kills you, Phoenix says as she walks out. (laughs) And I love this bottom part where Liz, like, smells it. (laughs) Because she's, like, making sure it's meant or whatever. (laughs) These are really cute scenes. I really like that. Yeah, it's really good. 
We cut to the BPRD commissary. And so remember, Howard used to sit alone, and now he's got all these people yeah. around him. They're all talking, but none of them are talking to him. Right. They're all facing away from him, but they're, but they're all still kind of, there surrounding they're all him. They're yeah. in close proximity. And Kate's there with Johan. So we get this nice scene with Kate. I always love how James Heron draws her characterizations. Yeah. And so she's like, unbelievable, before your mission, he was practically a pariah. Nothing succeeds like success, Johan says. And he was successful. Yeah, working magic, whatever that means, Kate says. Do we know what that means? Catherine, I've done my best. I invite you to question the man yourself. I did, Kate says. Phoenix's mutt is more responsive. (laughs) The way she gestures with her. Bowtie pasta. (laughs) Professor O'Donnell, he's the best one to understand what Howard's might be doing, Johan says. Oh, sure. Let's get O'Donnell to talk to him. Those two in a room together. (laughs) (laughs) That would be great. I want to see that happen. I I do. Yeah, I want to see that, honestly. We see Enos come up. He's still wearing his sunglasses. And he's like, is it all right if I sit here? And Kate's like, absolutely, Agent Enos. I read the report. I'm sorry about your team, but you did good work, Kate says. Nah, I didn't. Stayed alive is all. But Howard's, that's your leader, not me, Enos A little flash of humility here. Right. Yeah. And Johan's like, you said that before. It's obvious you respect him. So why sit here with us? Sure, I respect him, Johan, Enos says. He saved my life. But what can I say? Just not much of a follower. Haven't you figured that out by now? And so we see this one agent walking towards to sit with Howard's. And so he's drawn the, he's yes. altered the BPRD logo. It's right? so oh, good. I love it. Okay, now, well before this came out, but after Howard's, the character was introduced with that sword, I drew that logo and sent it in oh, with a cool. letter. Oh, wow. And, and was like, all right, my theory is that this is the sword, just for the heck of it, right? And yeah. they didn't publish it. And then months later, I see this. And so I wrote in again, it was like, Hey, come on. Oh, man. Did I influence that? Or why didn't you print my letter? Because I even sent an image. They didn't answer. So then I began to, like, pester, right? And <laughs> nice. I was like, no, no, no. I was like, no, you have to tell me now. I need answers, right? And at this time, I was talking with Scott about other stuff. So I had a little bit more access. I wrote it in the form of a letter, and he ended up printing that. And he goes, okay, yeah, we didn't run your letter or show that image because it would have been a giveaway because we had already decided yeah. to do this panel. And, and they didn't want to spoil that moment. Yeah, he said, but you called it before anybody else. Oh, that's great. Nice. Oh, that's nice. awesome. Pretty yeah. cool. Very cool. That's awesome. That's I no awesome. longer think that's the sword in the logo, though. Uh, right it just goes to show you you know great minds and you're on the same yeah, wavelength yeah. there and you're you're picking up what they're laying down and all that sort of Full thing so that's nerd really, mode yeah <laughs> but i do i do really like this moment i do really that think cool? that's it's such a good it's such a good payoff right they've built this story so well it's such a good journey yeah. you know and it's the character development and the story development everything so they, awesome. they were so patient with it they didn't try to rush it. They didn't try to cram everything in there. And that's when you get a good, enjoyable fucking story. That's when you get something that resonates with you and, and you can really sink your teeth into it. And so that's something I really appreciate about the series. Oh, yeah. It is all about the journey. I do want to make this jacket. Yeah, now. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you buy the Lawrence Campbell sketchbooks, that image is on the back of oh, the awesome. sketchbook. It has Very the BPRD cool. logo and then it's like someone's drawn that extra thing on it. Nice. 
For this last scene, we cut back with Gaul Denar. The men return from their journey with a supply of game. Gaul confirms that the valley is purged. Purged with blood and fire, he says. And so we see this huge wildfire. So that's how they're destroying all the fungus that was had infected all that life there. And so that kind of reminded me of in Abe Sapien when he was in Onto the Last Man in Payson. They mm. burned all those horses, remember, and everything. Yeah. Gaul asked for the spirit father, but they tell him they found him waiting in the lake. Then he started coughing later. Those damn stones, Gaul says. And now we are without a spirit father. He trained no one in his ways. And so one of the others is like, Gaul Denar, he talked to you. He told you so much. Yes, he did. You more than anyone. He is already dressed for burial. So soon, Gaul Denar asks. The moon is new tonight. The ceremony could wait no longer. So it's good you are home. With boar and deer, yes it is good, Gaul says. Our ancestors will receive Spirit Father with a proper feast this day. That is all that matters. Tomorrow will take care of itself. The end. And then I love that hair in 2014 at the bottom. Just yeah. very beautiful work and a nice way to wrap this up. But when he says tomorrow will take care of itself, and they're, they're showing that lake. And that's where those stones yeah. are, right? Yeah. So. Just in that little line, I wonder if he knew that the stones would eventually find some use or where they were supposed to be. I really, really it, great story, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of parallels, visual and in the story, in this arc. And I think it's interesting that at the beginning, he's like, look, forget about the stones. What's important is that I be a leader to these people. And then at the end, acquiring and using the stones proved that people were willing to follow him oh, as a leader. Oh, you're right. Yeah. It's kind of cool. That's right. Yeah. That's beautiful. So, like, you know, so things worked out, you could say. Yeah. I love that. Thanks for pointing that out. We're on page 380 in the digital omnibus. We have some sketchbook notes by James Heron. He says, The Black Flame returns. We last saw him blowing up a large portion of Manhattan. I wanted it to look like it took a toll on his body. Either that or there's a natural degradation of his human silhouette from being so gosh darn evil. <laughs> Regardless of why, I wanted him to evolve and change as the series progressed. And so we see some of his designs for that. And then they also talk about Yosef's new design, which we mentioned earlier. We wound up with a chunky early Iron Man iron lung, James Heron says. I like a, one of the sketches says Marvel movie version. I was just going to say that, yeah. And Marvel then Space movie. Station version. <laughs> we also get some great designs of that monster that Howard's, Enos, and Johan and their team were fighting. And then we also see he has one of the original pages when Howard's is standing in front of that painting that he created, that cave-like painting. James Heron accidentally drew him still all covered with the soot, even though he's supposed to not have it. So he's got the original version of that in there. You can check that out. And then more designs of those fungus monsters. I don't remember having too much trouble with the fungal monster. John's description conjured a pretty specific image. I think we were all in love with the... Cordyceps mushrooms that take over ants' brains and later grow out of their heads like horns. What's not to love? Uh, yeah. That stuff also takes over their, if it's the same fungus, it takes over their muscles, although they're dead. Right. Yeah. Have, have we talked about this? I may have brought it up, but it makes them climb to a certain height so they can release spores. Right. You did yeah. mention that. Do I it think. again. Yeah, yeah. It's disturbing. And then we also see the interconnecting covers. It was Lawrence's idea to do the five covers as original series as a single piece. 
Dark Horse produced a free print that was given away at New York City Comic Con in 2014. And so that's very cool. I wish I had that print. So next we're going to talk about this short story, Broken Vessels. This is an eight-page story featured in the Hellboy Winter Special published in January 2016. The issue was published with four covers, one by Mignola and three variants by Tim Sale, Ben Stenbeck, and Michael Avon Omin. Written by Mignola and Ali, art by Tim Sale, awesome. colors by Dave Stewart, and letters by Clem Robbins. Yeah, so we get Tim Sale in the Mignolaverse. Yes. That is so cool. We open on Galdinar, and he's sitting at a fire. He's got like a dog there, right? Like a wolf, or what is that? Like a fox? I think it's a dog. And he's also got... Oh, we saw the dog with them earlier, too. And Maybe then, it's a coyote. And they've got like a buffalo or something that they've killed. And as he sits around a fire, this dark-dressed figure comes up to him. And so... Galdinar grabs the sword and he's like, away, stranger. The plane's broad enough for you to give me a wide berth. But the guy in black, he says, but it's too bare for him to scrape together a fire of his own. So he's just come to sit at the fire. He says, you've got nothing to fear from me. A coat of bones can't warm a man. So then we reveal his coverings are like chains and bones and skulls just all over. And so he says only fire can warm him. So he sits down and like, the dog is like gurring at him. The man in black says, you know of the shamans? I don't mean your holy men. Once real shamans commanded the Vril, heaven's own fire. Not far from here, some of the last of those great men fell in battle with a monster, worse than you can imagine. And so we see Shanshin fighting that monster. So this is the third yeah. time we've seen this monster. We saw him in BPRD the Dead. Then we also saw Shanshin fighting him in BPRD Gods. And now it's being referenced here. And so it seems like when Shanshin was fighting the monster, a bunch of the holy men that were killed there, they were all in the ground still. So this guy went and he like dug them up and found all their skulls. Right? Is that the correct reading on this? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He knew that there would still be power in their skulls. Our flesh, yours and mine, is too weak to contain the vril, the man in black tells Galdenar. But they whisper to me from these bones. They tell me how to draw the fire down from the air, as they did, so that I might make the world a paradise once more. And again, we see that like kind of hyperborean heaven that we were talking about last time. We also saw it in Dark and Terrible Deep. And so... He's got the skulls around him, and the skulls start glowing. And so this reminded me of the Baba Yaga skulls, right? Did you think about that? Oh, oh yeah. Cool. I did not, but uh, good And one. so remember, Baba Yaga gave one of the skulls to Vasilisa, and that's how she, w- she was able to get her power. So it's kind of like a precious thing. And then Baba Yaga's whole thing against Vasilisa was trying to get that skull back. But they all start glowing, and the man in black, he says, Here it is. They share my dream, friend. By the gods, this is it. You can see it, can't you? If you could feel, so I guess like all the power is kind of coming through, right? Or something. And so as he talks, then all these like kind of hooded figures appear. And so this is just art by Tim Sale and the colors by Dave Stewart. It's really beautiful, but also really creepy. Like, so these hooded figures, they have a glowing light from within their hoods. This guy is such a strobel. Right. Yeah, he is a strobel. Exactly. Prehistoric strobel. (laughs) And then, That's great. That's great. As the man in black is standing there, all the skulls, they break from their chains, and we see like these hooded figures are putting them back on their heads. Like, 
I guess Ugh. those are the people that the skulls originally belonged to, and now they've come back to take them from this prehistoric strobel. <laughs> and so they take all their skulls back, and then they fly away. So I guess they're able to ascend. Maybe they were trapped until this point. And so the man in black says, I told you, I knew their power remained. It isn't meant for man, but those bones, they prove the power remains here with us. And those are his last words as he dies. And then he's just left there dead. That's Tim Sale Arts. So good. Yeah, that was a really, really weird kind of story. I just kind of love the open-endedness and like, what was that? It was just something weird that happened to Galdenar, right? Yeah. I never knew that Tim Sale drew a Galdenar story. Like, this is blowing my mind. Yeah. Yeah, when I saw Tim Sale's name, I was just like, oh, yeah. we're in for a treat. Yeah, and the art is really beautiful on this one. And um, I do have the Tim Sale cover for this issue, cool. and so Same I'll here. go ahead and Me post too. that. Yeah, it's a really good one. Yeah, but that was a cool story. I'm glad that Mark Tweedo kind of threw it in there. It kind of goes along with these stories that we read this week. And yeah, I just really love this. It's been awesome. This is, I think you said this was your favorite one. This has been yeah, one of my favorite things to read so far. I'm I continue to be right on the money with my <laughs> guess about It's your boy Howard. It's it's your boy Howard's. Yeah, I'm very I was very excited to read this and I was not disappointed by the end of it. So I'm I'm really loving this this shit. Yeah, and I can't wait to hear all the listener feedback on these stories and what are your interpretations of how this whole story worked out. Our listeners always have great theories. Now Aubrey's gonna say all the things. All right, everybody, share us your thoughts on BPRD, Hell on Earth, Flesh and Stone, and Broken Vessels. You can send us a Hey You Damn Guys at HellboyBookClub at gmail.com. Follow us on Facebook at Hellboy Book Club Podcast and on Instagram and Twitter at Hellboy Book Club. You can also find the Discord link and the reading order on our Facebook About section. As always, a special thank you to Paul from Gartahan for the amazing theme. Yeah. Uh, Mark Tudell for all the work he does, uh, helping John out with yeah. the reading order. Yeah. John for all the amazing editing work yeah. that he does to make us sound awesome, or <laughs> at least make me sound awesome. <laughs> you can find the podcast on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Uh, next week, we are reading BPRD, Hell on Earth, Exorcism, and The Exorcist. So, you know what to do. Pull out your back issues. Pull out your trades. Get your digitals. Call up Max von Saito and have him join you in the reading list. <laughs> <laughs> and join us next week on the Hellboy Book Club podcast. Thanks a lot for listening, everybody. I'm John Salinas. And I'm Daniel. And I'm Matt Schrockbein. And I'm Aubrey Lovelace saying, Lord Jesus, if I could just have a drink. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Happy birthday, Aubrey. Happy birthday, Aubrey. Happy birthday. Happy birthday.